When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. But I hate to keep people waiting, so uh, let me just push that button and say good morning, Kay. Yes. Good morning. You're on the air. How can I help you? Um, I was wondering, is there some type of worm that gets in live oak trees? Do By worm, do you mean caterpillar? Something like that. I just know that some of the leaves are missing, especially way up around the top. And uh, I was just wondering what that was. It can be a number of things. Are these young trees? Are these established trees? Are these huge old ancient trees? Uh, um, tell me a little bit about the live oaks. They're uh, in the pasture behind my house, and they're about 20 years old. Okay. Like and is it uh, is it common across quite a number of trees or just one tree doing this? I've seen it in about three. And one more question, and then we'll start with the answers. Uh, about where do you live? Um, I live in Shiner. In Shiner, okay. Um, mm-hmm. There are uh, there are some caterpillars that do get up and do damage to uh, live oaks. Typically, they go after things much earlier. In the spring, the type of caterpillars that get after live oaks are things that we normally see February, March, April, as the new growth is coming out. And it is certainly possible, and you know, live oaks, uh, we call them evergreens, which just means they drop their leaves at a different time of year. And when that new tender growth is coming out, there are several different ones that, uh, several different caterpillars that can get up there and do damage. Now, um, if this is something that you, you know, know occurred recently, I mean, if you looked at it a week ago and the leaves were there and you look at it now and the leaves are gone, then it's probably not caterpillars. But my guess is these are, this is probably damage that was done somewhat earlier this year. Uh, The other thing about it is that you should be starting to see some new leaves come out by now uh, if indeed it is caterpillar damage. So uh, answer to your question, yes, there's some caterpillars that do damage. Uh, is that what's going after your trees? It's hard to say, but um, I would be expecting at least within the next month or so to start seeing some new uh, leaves come out. If they don't, then you are looking at you know just some dead limbs up in the top of the tree, and that can result from uh, anything that would stress the trees, like having soil piled around them, like compaction from people driving over them or parking on top of them, or if you've had any construction done in the past five years. There are a lot of things that, that could be causing the trees to be under some stress, which is what actually what it sounds more like to me. 
Um, unfortunately, I guess the bad news is that it's also one of the early symptoms of oak wilt. The good news is that you don't have much oak wilt in your area, so I, I would put that as being fairly unlikely. Um, I would look underneath the trees, see if the trees are shedding any green leaves at this point, just falling off and on the ground. If so, examine those leaves carefully. If you see leaves that are dark green in color, but the veins seem to be turning yellow to orange, uh, that's a real danger sign. That could easily be, you know, oak wilt, which, uh, and there are things you can do about it. But um, I, I would ask you to take a little closer look at the, those trees and get back to me and tell me if there is new growth appearing or if it appears that these are just dead limbs up in the top of the tree and uh, then we will see if we can figure out what might be causing it. Has has any, you know, work been done? Are the root flares fully exposed on these trees? Do you see the big, broad base of the tree flattening out um, at the I base? Exposed the, <clears throat> I exposed the root flare a couple of years ago. They probably need to, I need to go back and re-expose them possibly. Uh, there, there seems to be new growth though coming on. Okay, new then in that case, it it could be any number of uh, different things. And if you see new growth coming on up there, then there's absolutely nothing to worry about. I do think it is important uh, to check and be sure that root flare is exposed, and of course avoid compaction. Uh, I know sometimes uh, all of us that live in the country, there's a temptation to park in the shade underneath the trees. Don't do that. Bad for the trees. You know, park out in the sun and leave the windows down a little bit because over time that compaction is one of the things that really does cause sort of an insidious uh, damage that takes some time to show up but can be very destructive to the trees. But uh, if you've got new growth coming out, uh, it sounds to me like there's nothing real serious there to worry about. And, and at one point, uh, I just saw a little, it just looked like a little bit of almost webbing or something. Yeah, like then that. you probably had some caterpillars, but they are long gone. There's not really <laughs> anything you can do about them or should do about them. What I would like you to do is put on your calendar next year, sometime toward the end of January, you're going to be seeing appear in the nurseries and some of the better feed stores, they will offer a, you know, there's strips that have developing larvae of this little parasitic wasp called a trichogramma. And you hang these strips. They're very inexpensive. You hang them in the tree. These tiny little wasps that are very little larger than a gnat, they can't sting you or anything like that. But they destroy the eggs of those caterpillars before they hatch out. Uh, they're gall worms or leaf-rolling caterpillars or a bunch of different ones. And uh, it, the, the problem is we just never know which year these things are going to show up. They seem to be cyclical. I've seen years when they almost totally defoliated the oak trees. I've seen years when I did not see even one single limb damage. So it's a question, uh, you know, do you want to spend, depending on how many trees you have, you know, 5 to $25 or so, just kind of insurance against that kind of damage. But uh, this is not fatal. This is not long-term a problem to the trees. But if you want to avoid that problem next year, about January or so, I think they figure about five of these little strips per acre. And it sounds like your trees are concentrated probably certainly within a one-acre area. So, you know, maximum uh, number you're going to need are four or five of these little strips. And it pretty much will guarantee that you're not going to see any early pet caterpillar damage on uh, anything around your property. 
Okay. Well, I was at Earthworks yesterday, so I got some Medina Growing Green. Well, that's a good and thing. I had planned to soak some cornmeal and and pour out around the trees and put some fertilizer out. Is that okay? Is that help or? That's an outstanding idea. <laughs> You're on. <laughs> Laurie and staff over there pointed you the right direction. And uh, the nice thing about the Growing Green is it you can put it out even in the you know heat that we're experiencing. It does not have to be watered in. So. Uh, you uh um you just do what you have planned do it in the cool part of the day and your plants will love you for it okay thanks a lot my pleasure Kay. thank you for the call this morning certainly Mm -hmm. goodbye all right we're going to talk to john javier and david and john's next good morning john hi bob Uh, morning want to let you know the i wasn't able to hear on the phone uh so came as kind of a shock i was having to listen on the radio and then listen to you here so oh listen i had lots of problems trying to get my phone working this morning when i first came in so uh don and i think they're little gremlins that come into the studio overnight (laughs) and just mess things up in general but yeah got you now and uh enjoying talking to you how can i help all right i have a few questions uh first of all john you're going away are you there here yeah, I think you got a problem with uh, with your phone. Uh, I can hear it. Can you hear me now? Be sure you haven't hit the mute button on your phone because I can't hear anything. Nope. Uh, okay, you're you're back. Or, you're back now. You're back now. Okay, I hit it and hit it again. Um, okay. Anyway, I had grown blackberries in my garden a few years ago, and I had runners coming off from all over the garden. Uh huh. And. And so I just got tired of it and dug them all up and got rid of them, and I've missed them so much over the years that I'm thinking <laughs> of putting them back in. But I was thinking of getting big containers uh, and cutting the bottom out of the container. I don't know if those runners come from deep roots or <laughs> and no way to prevent that. Is that what you're getting ready to uh, Well, yes and no. Uh, that's certainly one way to go about preventing it. Um, there are other things, uh, that, uh, you know, you might, you might also consider doing that will stop those runners. I mean, uh, compared to the cost and the extra effort of dealing with the big containers and not being sure if that's going to control them, you can always, uh, and as you well know, blackberries, uh, do best if they have a trellis or I use cattle panels, something for them to go up on, Mm -hmm. but, uh, move two feet out from there and simply dig yourself a trench, go down to the, uh, hardware lumber store and get yourself some uh, metal flashing uh, sink that about six inches down into the soil, and the runners aren't going to go any deeper than that. They won't, you know, they may congregate and come up right along the edge. Uh, but you could do the same thing. You could get some of that rubber edging, which I don't like as edging, but certainly could be used in the garden. Uh, you do need to get down at least four or five inches, but you'll find most of the runners that the blackberries are putting out are going to be in the upper three to four inches of soil, really two to four inches of soil. So you can make yourself a little barrier there that's going to stop 98% of them. And if you have to dig up one or two of them further out in the garden, that's no big deal. But uh, nothing wrong if you want to get the big containers. And uh, you're probably going to stop uh, the little underground rhizomes for about three years. By the time the blackberries really fill out those containers, you may have some deeper 
you know, sections that are going to spread out and start coming up. But uh, either way, uh, it's it's a problem that you can head off 95% of, and uh, the few that do escape, it's not a big deal. You probably want to plant some more plants somewhere anyway. Right. Uh, and I don't mind them going out in my yard. I can just mow those down. But, sure. you know, coming up in the garden, they end up coming up through everything under the sun. And <laughs> yeah. And just don't go walking barefoot out where they're coming up out in the yard, or it will become a very uh, prickly experience. Right. <laughs> Uh, okay. Um, a, I have a few holes in my front yard where we've taken trees out over the years. And, and so now I have little sinkholes that are mm-hmm. probably in the center or three or so inches deep. And St. Augustine has grown back in over the top, obviously, and everything. And I was curious, can I just fill those with dirt? I, I, it seems like I remember as long as I leave some green showing. Those no, you're you're things. you're gonna you're gonna kill the Saint Augustine if you cover up the runners very deeply. It's That's no big deal. Question. It's gonna grow back in from the edges so fast. From it's edges. no big deal. My concern is uh, if you're just using you know fill dirt, you're gonna bring in plenty of weeds. So I would be using a uh, naturally pasteurized material. Uh, uh, might even consider using compost. Might mix compost in lava sand. Um, just don't go out and, and settle for pasture dirt. Get a good quality dirt uh, that does not have peat moss in it, but one that is going to be at least 98% weed-free. Because if you just go out and get topsoil, you know, you may be bringing in everything from nutsedge to Johnson grass, and you don't want to have to deal with that. Uh, Brooks Stone Yard is right down the road from me, so I figured I'd just go down there and get some some garden soil and put it on top. <laughs> you you make them sign in blood that it has no weed seed in it. <laughs> well, I asked him, ask him that. He's like, are you crazy? We can't guarantee that no weed seed is on them. Well, just tell them he has to come pull them up if they show up. <laughs> but you right. can get soils that are guaranteed to be weed-free from, uh, you know, some of your better material suppliers, but it's not going to be the cheapest pile on the yard. All right. Okay. Um, last thing. Um, I planted a few peach trees uh, this past spring, early spring, and uh, have <laughs> kept the weeds, or not the weeds, the St. Augustine runners, and the I have a mix of St. Augustine Berbina in the backyard because my mm-hmm. St. Augustine dried out too much years ago. And uh, what's a, I, I've tried, you know, edgers and all that stuff, and it seems like it gets through everything I do. Don't worry about I'm it. Just don't worry about it. There's nothing wrong with having grass under your peach trees. Be sure that root flare is exposed. Um, you may want to yeah. add a little extra fertilizer, but you know this is this is a uh, myth spread by some of the extension service people and all that you need to have bare soil underneath the trees, and it's simply not true. Uh, if you want to dump a little mulch on top of it, you will suppress the grass. But there's absolutely no reason to try to maintain bare soil underneath those trees. Okay. I well, mean, yeah. you can get in there with your. The, you can put a little guard around the, you know, around the trunk of the tree. But your tree's going to be thick enough; they're going to shade out most of what's trying to come up. And uh, you can put a little guard around the trees and kind of reach under with your line trimmer. I've got a heavy-duty line trimmer and a very lightweight line trimmer, and the lightweight one is what I use for getting in underneath things. And uh, but don't don't feel like you have to maintain bare soil underneath there. That's a waste of time and a virtual impossibility. Well, I wasn't really trying to do bare soil, but you know, I know that you're not big on uh, 
weed barrier anymore. I've, you know, I have some of that left over from years of using it. <laughs> don't and, put it. So. Don't put it underneath your trees. You've you've seen what it does to the soil that you put it on top of. Yeah. Um, well, <laughs> not only that, I've got some nut grass in there that comes up through everything anyway, so it doesn't really matter. Well, and and like out. old Malcolm Beck told me years ago, he said the healthiest cornfield he ever saw was just a sea of nut sedge, absolutely beautiful corn. So. Uh, uh, visually, yeah, uh, it's not very nice, and uh, it doesn't look as clean and neat, but it's not going to interfere with whether your peach trees do well or not. Okay. All right, well, then I won't worry about it. That would be my advice, and you get out and have a good weekend. All right, appreciate it, Bob. Thank you, John. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye. Javier's next. Good morning, Javier. Morning. Morning, sir. Uh, uh, I'm like the, one of your callers some months ago said every time she calls, she goes. She ends up being right up against the news. Well, we got we've got three three and a half minutes, and if that's not enough time, I'll put you back on hold, and we'll talk after the news break. So, how can I help? Let's get started. Uh, there was about twenty years ago when I moved here uh, a little. Uh, it's a yellow uh, cluster, uh, and they said it was called bear's claw, and it, it was up against the. Uh, it's like a a bulb, I guess, but it was up against the ground, uh, flush against the ground, and I've never been able to find that nowhere. And I've asked people, well, they told me it was called Bear's Claw, and they told me I've never heard of that. I've never heard. I've heard of kangaroo paw, and there's a yellow flowered form and sort of an orangey pink flowered form, but uh, uh, Bear Claw? Yellow, yeah. yellow mustard, mustard yellow. Uh, it was like a bulb, and it was flush against the, the ground. Uh, you know, it didn't have like a stem. Uh, mm. and, and I've never found it again. I found it in the nursery in San Marcos at the time. I was passing by there. And, and uh, so, anyhow. I, that's, that's a new one on me. I'm trying to think there. Uh, there's a little yellow crocus that is very short to the ground. Um, and I can think of a number of different annuals and perennials that have yellow flowers down toward the ground, but uh, um, that's how how large are the flowers when it comes into bloom? They're kind of large. They're not small. By and, large, uh, the size of a quarter, the size of a cup. Size of a bigger than a large egg. Hmm. It, that sounds like a primrose to me. They're, um, they're the whole group of uh, primroses is a genus called Enothera. It includes Missouri primrose, square bud primrose, and they stay very low to the ground. Many of them, some of them are open during the day. Square buds open during the day. Uh, others of them close up during the day and then open at night. Um, look, look at, uh, online, look at your plant books, uh, look at some of the different primroses because that's sure what, uh, that's sure what it sounds like to me. Well, I'll leave the other question for next time, but I was going to also, any, what happened with Bruce? He was going to, you were going to ask him to call every weekend, nothing 
Did he say not to? He keeps saying he's going to, and I never hear from him. Bruce is, uh, <laughs> Bruce, I'll be nice. Bruce can be kind of scatterbrained at times, as, <laughs> as I think you know from listening to him. And to the best of my knowledge, his health is good. Uh, he and his girlfriend are getting along very well, and they're having a whole lot of fun. Um, he is working on getting, I think, with, uh, uh, one of the uh, NPR stations, uh, he's been working on getting a show together there, and I know he's been putting a lot of time and effort into that. But uh, uh, I always tell him to call, and he always promises me he'll call the next day, and uh, I'm still waiting for that phone call to happen. But good news is, so far as I know, he is healthy and happy. Bad news is he's just awfully busy, so we're not hearing from him. But uh um, I will tell him that Javier said he'd like to hear his voice on the air. And so, okay, well, if you don't want me to put you on hold, I'll let you go and we'll talk again. Right now, it's time for news on KTSA Radio here in San Antonio, Texas. Okay, well, David's been waiting longest, so he's first, then it'll be Chris, then it will be you if you want to dial that 210-599-5555 number. Good morning, David. Good morning, Bob. How are you this morning? Uh, you know, it's just a nice morning out there. I, I'm not real uh, fond of having alarm go off at 3 o'clock in the morning, but, you know, you do what you do, and I thoroughly enjoy my time with folks like you. Thank you. I wonder if you can help me solve a mystery here at our home in Pasadena. Okay. The other, the other day, I walked around the south side of the house, brick house, mm-hmm. and there were like 30 to 40 little tiny snails crawling up the wall. Uh, they were around the window frames on the brick, left no trail at all. Mm-hmm. But what they did leave is these little black deposits. Mm-hmm. That's their poop. So I went and got some sluggo or some similar snail bait, put it down. Then I thought, wait, they're all up the wall. I'm going to pressure wash it. So I knocked <laughs> them all down, knocked the stuff down. And it wasn't a half an hour later. There were several of them about a foot up again. Right. And we go. What is going on? There, we don't have any vegetables. There's only a strip, small strip of grass where they came up from. Uh, what are they up to? Well, they're probably, you guys have certainly had a bit of moisture lately. Uh, you send some of it to us. But uh, they snails like a moist environment, but they don't like an excessive amount of water. And there are times that they just need to dry out a bit. And that's most likely what they're doing. They're just getting up out of um, the vegetation. They're getting up where where it's not quite so wet. And uh, tell me about them. Are they sort of flat-shelled? Are they like a little spiral shell that's fairly flat? Or are they kind of stretched out almost like an ice cream cone? No, they're, it's a spiral type. Okay, but, but, uh, but they, are, they are relatively flat. Yes. Okay. Those are probably what are called bush snails, and uh, they actually prefer a little bit drier environment than many other snails do. They're not your friends, but they're not going to be hurting your grass. Now, if you had, we actually worry about them in greenhouses, getting down in pots and eating roots and doing things like that. And uh, little Sluggo Plus would, or even Sluggo, the Sluggo Plus just gets spill bugs as well. Sluggo is a little less expensive, and it's certainly effective against snail 
whales and slugs, but uh, um, they just, for whatever reason, uh, decide they want to get away from uh, heavy moisture, and um, I don't know how much rain y'all got. I, again, I was in uh, Georgia most of last week when the tropical storm moved in, but it's my understanding that you got a fair amount of moisture, and they're probably just getting no, up. Actually, we didn't. We really? didn't get a drop of rain out of any of that. Oh, really? No. Well, it's, you know, it, I, I, I can't explain snail behavior, but usually <laughs> when you find them, find them in mass climbing up on things, it's to get away of whatever is in the soil, and that most commonly uh, is just m- more moisture than they really like. So that would be my guess as to what you're seeing there. Uh, pressure washing is a pretty good idea. Um, but uh, you may want to follow it up with a little sluggo or something like that because they're not going to do a lot of damage, but they are a nuisance. And, um, you know, that little black poop specks that they're leaving up and down, they will wash off. But <laughs> if you don't want to look like you're living in a uh, uh, in a very strange little world surrounded by snails, uh, I, a little sluggo should take care of it uh, um, or just, you know, repeated power washing crank the pressure up a little bit and you'll probably actually kill them as well as knocking them off well what i've been doing is uh picking them off and putting them in a ziploc i thought it, it, it seems to be a lot more efficient and a lot quicker and well about it is yeah will trim around windows the stain won't hardly come off with a pressure wash okay um That's the other nasty. the other thing i would suggest you do is uh get some relatively um, shallow little, like a saucer, like a little plant saucer or something like that, uh, and just buy a couple of cans of the cheapest beer you can find anywhere and put two or three, uh, well, maybe half an inch to an inch down in there, and they will crawl into that and die by the thousands. Uh, they're not going after the alcohol. They're going after the yeast. But yeast. that is the best and simplest little snail trap in the entire world. We used to get uh, something came out of England, and they called it appropriately enough a slug pub. And it was like a little plastic, uh, heavy plastic dish. And it had what looked like a little umbrella over the top of it and had like a little basket part down in there that was connected to this umbrella sort of thing. So you could just kind of lift it out, and it was kind of like, uh, like lifting the thing out of your coffee maker that has all the grounds in it, shake all the dead bodies out and put it back in there. I can't do that because I have two black labs, and they think that beer is God's gift to dogs. (laughs) Even Ben Franklin said, uh, (laughs) Ben Franklin all those years ago said, beer is proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy. And that's what those two black labs think about it. But uh, if you can do that, uh, you know, just in an area that's not real obvious, uh, they will try and, you know, travel significant distances, and it'll save you uh, a lot of picking and a lot of a uh, lot of other problems and uh, i kid you not three or four days time you'll probably wipe out 99 percent of them in the area okay well, mother nature's playing tricks on me this year also on that same south side i've got three different types of wasps that t- keep trying to build nests i had a big tape i guess you call them paper wasps yeah, the ones that build the exposed uh, paper nest uh-huh. yes those are what we call paper okay. wasps then there are two other different kinds I've never seen before, and they keep looking for a place to build their nest along the southwood fence. Uh-huh. I, I found that kind of weird. And then there's a 
possibly a fourth kind. I, it's hard to tell. There's a dead maple tree mm-hmm. uh, out in the back, and they're boring holes in it. And now, those shall, is, those are something. Some of those, they're oblong holes, though. Yep. Yep. Usually they're round holes. Well, you're looking What's there at uh, you know what we call a mason bee. There are actually about sixty different species of mason bees ah, common in Texas. Okay. So that's what you're seeing out in the cedar trees. Your paper wasps, they are in effect your friends. I don't know that this year, other than the fact that we have had all across Texas more moisture. I'll follow something called the Palmer Drought Severity Index uh, that we use in in the water district work that I do. But um, all of Texas has had a lot of moisture. The wasps have, have a good, had a good year. They are the natural control for webworms, for uh, just about all kinds of damaging caterpillars. That's what they uh, paralyze, kill, and eat for food. So they are, except for the solid red ones, I tend to leave them alone. The red ones are very aggressive. I'm not real fond of them. But the yellow jackets, the red and black wasps, most of the other paper wasps, uh, if they are not any up any not anywhere I'm likely to have problems with them, I certainly leave them alone. Um, I'll tell you something you can do, and you'll just have to judge whether this is appropriate for your home or not. But if you will paint paint your eaves, your soffits, uh, a light blue color, they call it haint, H-A-I-N-T, haint blue. It's uh, just slightly darker than sky blue. Uh, it's it's not unattractive at all. But for whatever reason, and there are many debates about why uh, it is so, but the wasps simply will not build on it. Um, I went from having, you know, I think Malcolm Beck counted about 150 wasp nests on my around the sides of my house. I have a porch downstairs and balcony upstairs around three sides. And I had, he counted 150, 180 wasp nests or something like that. Wow. I went to the blue, and I have it most one or two a year they just simply moved up and started building my barn and other places so i still have them around but uh that haint blue paint is just absolutely incredible and some people say it reminds them of the sky and i've heard a lot of other things that i don't believe but i do know it keeps the wasps away if you go to dirtdoctor.com howard garrett's website you can get all the information on it right even though i quit drinking years ago uh, I still feel it might be sacrilegious to, to waste beer on snails, but I think that's <laughs> what I'm going to do this afternoon. Well, I think okay. that that's, um, yeah, and if you, if you buy the cheapest and nasty enough stuff, you won't be tempted to consume it yourself. So, <laughs> No problem there, Bob. There you go, sir. You have a good day. You do the same. Thank you, David. Goodbye. All right, let's talk to Chris. Good morning, Chris. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Uh, welcome back. Thank we missed you. Well, thank you so much. It's um, We do a couple of times a year that helps us keep shades of green uh, stocked with all those wonderful things that nobody else has. But believe me, Atlanta's not exactly what I'd call a vacation destination. No place like home. Hey, right? you're right about that. Uh, I just had a comment, mostly in a, in a real short question, that uh, a couple of months ago or so, uh, someone called in to talk about um, sewer gnats, and mm-hmm. it sounded like from your explanation that it was like near impossible uh, to get rid of those things. Oh, no. Sewer gnats are easily controlled with orange oil. Uh, well, you're... I'll tell you, uh, we, uh, well, this is something kind of strange that happened. Uh, a friend of mine started having that problem, and I said, well, let's put some orange oil in the 
peach, you know, mm-hmm. and the sinks and just everywhere, everywhere we could think of. And even had a little dish of it um, on the floor, just, I don't know, just to try it. And, but they just kept coming and kept coming and kept coming. And, um, you know, just when we thought we had them eradicated, here's come some more. And so we started caulking everything, every little crack, every little, you know, anything that we could think of. And um, she had me come over because she couldn't uh, bend over and get under her sink. So I started caulking around there. And guess what? There was a um, box of Red X that was full of them. Hmm. And that's where they were coming from. Okay. And the minute, you know, we got rid of that box uh, and no more gnats. <laughs> well, there there are many different kinds of gnats. The, uh, the so-called sewer gnat yeah. has to live and develop in water, and that's why you find it in the... You know, well, pea we, traps. We were finding them in the sink, in right. the shower, yeah, just and everywhere. You, you may very well be looking at fungus gnats, which sometimes come out of plants or come out of, like you were finding them in unusual places, unusual products. But uh good thing is you got rid of them. But there are yeah. many different kinds of gnats, and they are all very irritating. But that, oh my goodness, it was just, it was making them crazy but right. um that box was just riddled with holes and mm-hmm. they were coming out of that box interesting you know, so here's your problem there you go <laughs> so we got rid of that but anyway uh the other question i had was um what is a good uh, fall tomato I, I live in the bernie area i plant arkansas traveler i plant celebrity um, I'm always going to plant, you know, a few more, even though they're still out there and producing, I'm going to plant a couple more sweet 100s and a couple more June golds, but, Great. uh, I, celebrity's a very good one. Uh, better boy is still a very good tomato. Cherokee purple is fine for purple Cherokee, depending on who you get it from. Yeah. Uh, still a very good fall tomato, but, uh, um, need to get them in the ground. Yep. I'll do it today. All righty. Well, thank you very much, and uh, welcome back, and we're so happy you are back. <laughs> oh, well, Chris, I appreciate it. Thank you. All right, back to gardening, back to the phone lines. Helen, Sid, and Mike in that order, and Helen is first. Good morning. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Uh, I, after listening to you for years, it dawned on me that I uh, we have uh, – Railroad ties and Asiatic jasmine around two of our oak trees, and they're beginning to thin out. So I know that I need to remove the jasmine and the uh, and the railroad ties. How how big are these beds? How wide are these beds, Helen? Uh, they're probably let's see, from the uh, around them from the oak tree out to the railroad ties is about three feet. Okay. You may very well then need to just take them out. If, if you told me it was six or seven feet or something, I would tell you you could, in effect, create a bed like a donut. You could go in, expose the root flare of the tree, put a second inner ring up, because it's it's not the jasmine and the dirt that's over the roots that are hurting. It's the jasmine and the 
uh, dirt that is right up against the trunk and over that immediate root flare. So if you wanted to still have a bed of jasmine around that tree, you could do that. But I think uh, if if the bed is that small, you're going to end up wanting to move the outer wall out and then create that inner wall. So there there is an option to just taking it completely out. But it's just anything that exposes the root flare and keeps air circulating around that area will make your trees much happier. Much happier. I think that my yard is so small that I, you know, I'm just going to have to take it out. <laughs> well, it's your trees will the, your trees will appreciate it and will live longer and healthier because you do. Right. What do I need to do after I take it out and and try to expose the, the root flare? Uh, that's all there is to it. You just get the soil away. Uh, probably end up kind of washing the last bit of the soil away. The tree's health starts improving uh, the next day. You Normally, people will see a marked change within six months of the time uh, that they do. You simply get new growth, healthier growth, and fewer problems with the trees. Uh, things like uh, crepe myrtles, we see the aphid stop coming around. Uh, and the, the bad news is that it's uh, the trees can sit there and not show a lot of problems and then i've seen huge oak trees just fold up and die within a week's time because having that root flare covered having the trunk with the wet soil around it uh it gradually rots into the tree and once it kills that inner layer of tissue called phloem uh, the tree is basically dead so it's far better to do it preemptively so to speak don't wait until your trees start looking real bad because uh sometimes they're too far gone to save but uh where it's just a mild problem um you'll just notice an increased health and a lot fewer insects and other problems with the trees my uh county agent came out and looked at it and said too i have oak wilt in the tree Mm, i uh, if that is the case, it that's may or may not be related to it. Uh, I hope he didn't convince you to go spend five hundred dollars a tree for these expensive injections that don't work. No, he did not. Okay, what what you can do, and I this is scientifically proven now, and the arborists are learning to do the same thing that we've talked about for years. Uh, but get some whole ground cornmeal. You can get it at, uh, if you buy it at HEB, it'll be stone ground. If you buy it at natural grocers, they'll call it whole ground. Buy it at the nursery. It may be, be called fungicide cornmeal or feed store. Anyway, just buy the cheapest natural cornmeal, not the so-called enriched stuff. But exactly. uh, uh, take uh, some five-gallon buckets, put about a cup of cornmeal in there, fill them with water, Uh, soak uh, for about 24 hours and simply pour this around the tree from the trunk all the way out uh, maybe 15 feet out and uh, you want to do this about every if the tree does truly have oak wilt you want to do it about every three or four months uh, for folks that are trying to prevent oak wilt if they'll do it every six months or perhaps even a year if you don't have any centers anywhere near to you um, you can stop oak wilt and your tree can recover a hundred percent Okay, I will. I will. I will be doing that. I have been listening to you and and hearing about the cornmeal. Yeah, it it really does work. The cornmeal is not the magic. It's a beneficial fungus called Trichoderma that grows on the cornmeal that will control everything from oak wilt to many different rotting diseases to toenail fungus and athlete's foot and ringworm in animals and people. So. Uh, 
It's very well documented, but um, just get to work on it because uh, if your trees do have oak wilt, that's a fungus that slowly plugs up the vessels that uh, transmit water back and forth, translocate water back and forth through the trees. And uh, you don't want to let it get out of hand. You want to stop it when it first gets started. So uh, you call me back if you have any questions I can help you with further. It's a cup of cornmeal and a gallon of water. Five gallons of water. Five gallons. Okay. And then you just pour that water. Don't try to strain it or anything. Just pour that out. Normally within 15 feet of the trunk, if it's a small tree, five gallons is enough. If it's a huge tree, probably four or five buckets uh, around that tree. But uh, it's a good way to both prevent and control oak wilt so long as it hasn't gone too far. Okay. I will, I will be trying that. Thank you, Bob. Always a pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for your help. You're sure welcome. Goodbye. All right, uh, Sid's up next. Good morning, Sid. Well, good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Uh, I have a couple of questions about the NOLO. Yeah. Uh, I bought some from you this week. I did not get to put it out yet. Uh, about a month ago, I saw a few big grasshoppers, and now I don't see any of the big ones. I just see some of the little ones. Mm-hmm. They're not uh, really... Strong, uh, I mean, not a lot of them yet, but there's enough. And uh, I was trying to decide whether I should put that NOLO out today or whether I should wait until after there's no possibility of rain. doesn't really make a whole lot of difference. It is a bait. The grasshoppers are attracted to it, and it's most effective against young grasshoppers. So uh, uh, if you can make it rain by putting it out... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I will encourage you to do so, but uh, it's not going to be much affected if it's if it's out six hours before it rains. Uh, the grasshopper six daylight hours grasshoppers are almost certainly going to find it, and uh, they'll probably even go after it. Uh, you know, even if it does get wet. So, um, depending on your faith in the weatherman, the highest rain chance I've seen is only about forty percent. So, uh, I'm I'm probably going to be putting it out. But if you want to wait a week, just as long as those grasshoppers don't get too large. And it doesn't really kill the grasshoppers. It sickens them to where they stop feeding, which is what you're trying to accomplish. Uh, The bigger grasshoppers are highly cannibalistic, and then they go start eating those younger grasshoppers. They get the bacteria in their system. Nosema locustri is what uh, NOLO stands for, by the way. And uh, it just it, it spreads through the population, and it sickens them, and then they die over a period of days or weeks. But uh, don't expect to start finding dead grasshoppers around for some time. But it's uh, uh, keep it in the refrigerator. In fact, uh, some instructions will tell you to keep it in the freezer until you decide to put it out. But uh, um, that decision is up to you. I wouldn't, I wouldn't hesitate to put it out this evening. Okay. Now, uh, that was my other question. I know that in the past with the other product, you said to keep it in the freezer, what you didn't use, but uh, it says to keep it about 42 degrees, and that it's also a biologic type uh, uh, 
thing, and yep. I was wondering, well, won't the freezer kill that? Well, it depends. Uh, you know, there have been two different companies produced it in the past, um, and one said freeze it, the other said just cold. Probably just in the refrigerator is fine. There are very few things I put in the freezer. You never put uh, beneficial nematodes in the freezer, for instance, but uh, the other folks that produce it under the name of Semispore, they're the ones that told us to keep it in the freezer if you're going to store it for any length of time, but I always go by the label instructions. If they're suggesting 40 degrees, then uh, the uh, the uh, crisper, what is it they call the vegetable crisper or something like that. <laughs> I'm laughing because I saw one when we were over at market, one of the little signs we bought said, uh, someone keeps putting vegetables in the beer crisper. But uh, what they call the vegetable crisper in the refrigerator would be a real good place to keep it until you're ready to put it out. Okay. Uh, another question is about where to put it. Uh, my garden is about 40 by 60, mm-hmm. and uh, I'd say about two-thirds of it is actually raised beds. Uh-huh. And uh, I do have a little bit of, of a weedy area inside the garden. I have mm-hmm. a lot of weedy area outside the garden. Just just scatter it widely. I'll tell you what I actually do is normally wait for a windy day, and I'll just stand up wind and throw it up in the air. Because, as you'll notice, it's very lightweight, and just let the wind spread it around. But uh, the grasshoppers are going to find it. Grasshoppers have a keen sense of, uh, you know, toward the attractant that they put into the uh, NOLO products. So uh, I, I just scattered. And actually, if I were in your shoes, since you're not trying to do an acre at a time, I'd probably put half of it out now and wait and put the other half out next week. That way you're not uh, going to be worried whether rain's going to diminish its effect or anything. It only takes a very small amount. That one one pound container will do thousands and thousands of square feet. So I'm just going to scatter it as widely as I can. Okay. And the next question is, uh, uh, should I actually put it in the beds, possibly? Or, sure, or? sure. And if it oh. hangs up on the foliage of the plants, that's fine, too. The grasshoppers will find it. Uh, don't waste a lot of time figuring out the perfect place to put it. I mean, it should take you five minutes to get this job done. It's not going to harm anything. And wherever you put it, the grasshoppers will find it. So just distribute it as widely as you can. But uh, this is not something we're going out and bending over and being careful to put a little bit here and a little bit there. Not not that kind of product. Well, uh, the the instructions on the bag is what confused me because it was saying do not put it on the fruit. Well, you know, we all know what CYA stands for, and that's what a lot of a lot of uh, warnings and cautions they put on labels. Um, it's this is not something that is known to have any effect at all on uh, warm-blooded animals. Uh, I would keep it out of waterways and streams and things like that. But if a little bit of it winds up on the on the fruit, uh, the wind's going to blow it off, and it's not going to. I'm, I'm certainly not going to dispose of the fruit just because it came in contact with the uh, nolo. I'm just going to wash that tomato before I eat it. Well, we always do that anyway. Uh, Another question is, uh, we have some cucumbers. Uh, They didn't really produce well this year like they have in the past. Mm -hmm. And plus, uh, about a week ago, I didn't get to water very good, and they really went downhill. Oh, yeah. Uh, 
can we plant more now? Yeah, absolutely. My cucumbers produced real heavily for a very brief period. I mean, when I left for Atlanta, the plants were pretty much loaded, and I picked several bags that I gave away. And when I got back eight days later, the you know, even though I do have an automatic timer on my watering, there's hardly a cucumber out there. But plant another crop for fall, absolutely. It just got too hot too quickly for them to have an extended production period. And is there a cucumber that works better in the heat? Um, I probably would go with one of the old-fashioned straight-eight national pickling, um, any of the bigger cucumbers. My Persian Little Fingers cukes that I love in the spring, I do not plant in the heat, but uh, Market Moore, Space Master, you know, any of those work fine. Okay. Uh, one more question. We've got a terrible mosquito problem in our garden. Mm-hmm. And it seems like it's more in the garden than anywhere else. Uh, we we do have some water, but we use the uh, uh, mosquito dunks and sure. the, where the water is. Um, uh, I would get a little cedar oil and spray around or a little very dilute orange oil. And I'd be using, um, you know, a good personal repellent that doesn't contain DEET. Uh, the mosquitoes love the dense foliage, they love the humidity, and they fly up to a mile. So um, it's not they're not necessarily breeding in your garden, but they're certainly coming in there because they like it. The cedar oil, garlic, a uh, little bit of orange oil, all those things will work at repelling them, uh, but they're going to keep coming because it's the nicest spot in town. So, And Sid, I'm going to have to hold you there because i got a bunch of people waiting, but it's good to talk to you, and don't hesitate to call me again. All right, back to gardening, and Mike's up first, and it'll be Faye and Rita and Gary. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Bob. Hey, good morning, sir. I have uh, okra plants, and I have really small, tiny ants all over the okra and the blooms. How do I get rid of those? They're probably fire ants. Um, Two ways to go about it. You can put out the non-toxic ant bait, which is called Come and Get It. Put that out morning or evening, and uh, it's very effective against them. The other thing that uh, will work is to get some dry molasses, which is good for your soil and good for all sorts of other things. Uh, Fire ants don't like it. It doesn't kill them, but it makes them go elsewhere. And uh, I use dry molasses in my garden periodically, and when they start showing up on my okra, and I was picking okra last night, um, I'll get some of that and just scatter it up and down the row, and that usually moves the ants elsewhere. But you do want to get rid of them because they will actually eat okra. That's one of the few things that fire ants will actually eat. And um, number one, you don't want to lose the okra. And number two, it's not real pleasant to uh, pick the okra to even get a handful of fire ants in the process. So I would go after them. But I'm I'm either just going to scatter a bunch of dry molasses around or I'm going to put out some of the come and get it. Very good. I appreciate it. Well, it's my pleasure. Let me know how it works for you. I will. <laughs> Thanks, Have Mike. You too. Bye. All right. Let's talk to Faye. Good morning, Faye. Good morning. Good, good morning, Bob. Good morning. Glad to have you have you back on there. Well, I'm I'm glad to be back. I have just a little uh, few questions um, on um, uh, peppers of all kinds. What are the largest plants uh, in terms of uh, large plants? Probably in my experience, the poblanos. I have poblanos that will get. I did not plant them this year. I got back a little bit on the number of plant of uh, peppers I planted, but uh, 
My poblanos, I grow them in tomato cages, and those things get six feet tall. Well, that that's um, and and can they live a couple of years if you're fortunate? Well, they might for you. Where I live in the hill country, I'm going to get a frost that's going to do them in pretty much every year. Little chili pekins are the only peppers I've ever seen that will tolerate some frost and keep going. But um, if you could if you could avoid freezing, yeah, you could probably stretch a couple of years of life into them. And their native habitats are certainly perennial. But uh, um, <laughs> I just know that I'm going to get one or two hard freezes a year, no matter what. And so I I end up replanting every year on all my peppers. Well, okay. Well, thank you. That was a, a question. And then on the mosquitoes, um, when you're using orange oil. Um, give me a rough uh, guesstimate per gallon how much uh, orange oil you do. Well, the thing you have to be careful of is orange oil is a desiccant and it can burn things. So if I'm just spraying it around uh, for repelling biting flies, mosquitoes, things like that, I'm probably using about a tablespoon per gallon. Okay. Um, And uh, then uh, getting ready for... Uh, the leafy vegetable season. Um, are, what are our best choices in terms of uh, a couple of those varieties? Would you? Well, um, of course, you can start planting chard and kale earlier than you can many other things. Uh, spinach is going to have to go in late, but I love leaf spinach, and so uh, that's always going into my fall garden. But uh, I may be planting kale in early September and chard at the same time. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait for the weather to cool off, at which point I'm going to plant some lettuces. And I've had some really incredible... Uh, stories about this lettuce called Alaska that our friend James told us about. So uh, that'll be in my garden mix this fall. And then when it really starts getting chilly, that's when I'll start planting uh, the leaf spinach and things like that. But it's going to be uh, it's going to be kale and chard uh, early, and then uh, you know if you want mustard greens, lettuces, uh, things like that. That's sort of a mid fall meaning usually mid-october and then the spinach maybe even well into november before i think it's cool enough to plant that that really helps my calendar thank you bob for going over that and then one other quick one uh you have a small horse a mini horse and i collect the manure how how composted does that need to be before using it well if you're worried about weed seeds, and of course the material passes through a horse's intestine somewhat more quickly than it does a cow, and consequently horse manure can have a lot of weed seeds in it. So I'm going to probably let it compost for six months or so. Um, but you have to know that your that your hay uh, that the animals were fed the animals that produce the manure, you have to know that that hay did not have picloram on it because that does not go away by composting. That will stay for years and can absolutely ruin your garden. But if the main thing that you're worried about is about it being too hot, and if you're worried about weed seeds in it, then I would compost it myself for maybe six months before I used it. Okay. And in terms of, he mostly just grazes, but I usually supplement uh, after Mm-hmm. After the freeze and all, with uh, 
alfalfa pellets. Yeah. Um, do we need to check those again? No, to, no you can't sure. spray. You can't spray picklerama on alfalfa. So it's always going to be oh. totally clean. Good. If you can well, afford it, it's one of the best feeds in the world. Okay, good, good. Well, I uh, you covered my list. Thank you, Bob. And if any of your alfalfa spoils or anything to the point that you don't want to feed it to your horses, it's a great mulch in the garden as well. So don't ever let any alfalfa go to waste, Faith. But you probably already knew that. You get out and have a good weekend. We'll talk again. All right, back to gardening, back to the phone lines. Good morning, Rita. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. You know, I'm sitting here listening to you talk about talking to Faye about the fall and <laughs> you know, gardeners have got to be the most positive, happily mentally people around. You know what? We're always looking into the future. Well, I I would I would include optimism in that word and patience. That's uh, if you need a lesson in developing patience, take up gardening. <laughs> I know. And in I your know. case, take up orchid growing and get some little seedlings that it's not going to be, you know, it's be, you know, for several years before you see the first flowers. I've always thought and I've known a lot of fine orchid growers in my life because that was so much of a a hobby for me and i'm i'm back to have several hundred plants again in my collection but uh most of the orchid growers i've known rodney wilcox jones made it to 108 goodale moyer what was he 93 94 some of the my friends in hawaii uh you know well in their 90s and early hundreds and i've always said it's because they're gonna make darn sure they live long enough to see those plants bloom so yeah i'm with you plant people are special people in a lot of different ways Okay, well, I had one question, and you brought up another one. Going back to your commercial about Medina, yeah, you said you walk into your greenhouse and you like the pleasant smell after feeding the orchids. So, what is your? Are you? It's, it's this new liquid fish product. They call it fl- fish blend fertilizer. You have to buy it by the gallon. And I'm, I don't know that it's better than has to grow. It doesn't stain as much. And I actually, I alternate between the two. But uh, it's just, you know, it's kind of like spraying liquid seaweed. It's just kind of a little uh, uh, mental trip to the coast when you walk in there. If you close your eyes, to me, it smells a whole lot like walking the beach at South Padre. So um, anyway, th- that's just me. Other people might not like it, but uh, I don't object to it at all. Okay, well, I was just I was just curious, just trying to get a secret <laughs> out of the uh, professional here. Right. Um, my one question is about a dendrobium. Um, I'm a plant rescuer, so if there's one out there that I can try to rescue, I do. I was at the box stores, and this dendrobium, they had a healthy one that I I could have bought, but uh-huh. this one was struggling. And it had, at the time, three pseudobulbs, mm-hmm. all, no leaves. So I bought it. Now, two of the pseudobulbs rotted pretty quick, but I've still got one that is firm. Mm-hmm. Is there a chance that it can survive? You know, 
And you know orchids well enough to understand this. The orchid family is a huge family of plants, largest family of flowering plants in the world. And there are well over a thousand species of dendrobium out there. And by the way, there are actually a couple of fully dendrobium or fully deciduous dendrobiums that drop all of their leaves every year, even if they're perfectly healthy. But what a lot of the box stores are selling are something we call nobly types, spread from dendrobium nobly, N-O-B-I-L-E. And I don't know anybody in South Texas has ever been able to keep them alive because we're too hot in the summer. In fact, you know, other than the higher elevations on the big island of Hawaii and a few places in the Pacific Northwest and along the West Coast, they do very, very well. But unfortunately, in typical box store style, they're bringing in uh, some plants that they just have no chance of making it in South Texas. I don't know for sure that that's what yours is. But uh, I will tell you, in general, stick to the group of dendrobiums that are known as the philanthii, and uh, they actually call them phalaenopsis dendrobiums. They're not related to phalaenopsis, but the flowers in many ways are similar to phalaenopsis. But the philanthii-type dendrobiums are the ones from the miniatures to the big ones. Those are the ones that are going to do the very best for you here. I suspect you're looking at a plant that really wants to go home to Hawaii. Give, give it a try. Put it in the coolest place you can. Maybe bring it in the house uh, where it gets the air conditioning and treat it like you would any other dendrobium. But I'm afraid it's just a really cool weather plant. All right. Well, let's get back to the phone lines. And uh, the Gary, I know how you see is the first part of the area code, but 713 Gary, that's what I'll call you. Good morning. Good morning, Bob. How are you? I'm good, sir. How about yourself? Doing good. Uh, thanks for everything. You're, you're helping all of us. Uh, really My pleasure. It. My great pleasure. Uh, got a several questions. Uh, had some landscaping done last year, and uh, one of the plants, trees they put in was the Anacotra orchid. Uh-huh. Uh, it was staked up with some cane poles, and uh, those recently broke in that high wind. Uh, okay. Do I need to restake that up or let it what should I do with that? The Anacotra orchid is much better as a bush than as a tree. Uh, now, your other, the purple orchid tree, the Hong Kong orchid tree, those make trees. But grow your anacacho as a multi-trunked, um, well, you call it a small tree if you like, but grow it more like you would a bush. No, I would not worry about uh, staking it up. How, how long has it been in the ground? Uh, a year, and it's about yeah. eight foot tall. No, it's, it's got its roots well-established, and uh, you actually actually make it weaker when you give it that kind of support. Doesn't mean, and we've had some crazy storms. I have a friend about two miles away from me that lost a portion of a barn roof and had a 36-inch diameter oak literally busted off at ground level. So I'm not going to tell you that the agriculture is going to stand up to every storm, but at this point, it's beyond really needing your help. If it gets any damage, it'll be minor, and it'll grow right out of it. So, so cut it back, maybe, because it's like I said, it's eight foot tall. When I release it, when one of them broke the other day, it leaned over, you know, all, all over. The place. If you want to trim it lightly, you can. Um, they put on most of their blooms in the spring. They can scatter a few blooms later in the year, but I, I wouldn't prune it heavily. I wouldn't take off more than, say, 20% of the foliage at any one time. But if you want to shape it up a little bit, uh, certainly wouldn't hurt a thing to do it now. Okay. Uh, we planned a desert willow in memory of my son uh, mm-hmm. a couple of years ago. Bought it from Phoenix, uh, where where they pruned it. it. That's the only place I have a little bit of growth, a uh, few leaves. But that is as, as much as I'm getting, just a few leaves where they pruned it. Uh, what do you think, Matt? Could that be related to root flare? 
It could be related to root flare, but it's mainly related to being a desert willow. Um, okay. It's, and I've seen desert willows growing in the desert, lots of them in West Texas, and every one I would encounter, um, I was in a wildlife management area near Big Bend, and every one I encountered is two-thirds dead and one-third of the leaves or the limbs had a few leaves on them. So you can yeah. make a little bit prettier tree with exposed root flare with regular feeding and watering. But, um, I, you know, I'm certainly sorry for your loss, but as a memorial tree, there are other things that I would have probably chosen over a desert willow because it's it's always going to struggle along a little bit. They can be very long-lived. If you got it from Phoenix, you probably got the variety called Bubba that came out of the San Antonio Botanical Garden, and it's the best desert willow out there. But at the best of times, it will have maybe 60% foliage. At the worst of times, uh, you'll be doing well to find very many green leaves at all on it. And uh don't overdo it on the water. It likes it dry, but it's just not a real pretty specimen. <laughs> okay. Uh, it's got a good heart, but not a pretty face. I'll put it that way. Exactly, yes. Uh, I have got a bumper crop of sticker burrs this year. Yes, sir. I, I, I sprayed out uh, some corn gluten meal. I don't. I guess I just didn't do it heavy enough in the, in the spring. I, I think corn gluten meal is a waste of time. Because one of the one of the big misconceptions about pre-emergence is people think they kill seeds and they don't. Pre-emergence um, keep a seedling plant from developing a root system, and so the little plant uh, in dry times will dehydrate and die because it simply it loses all the moisture it has before it is able to grow any roots to supplant that. When we have a wet spring, it is much less effective because the plants can live for a long time and the effect of the corn gluten meal goes away before the little seedling plant dies. Uh, the other thing about grass burrs, grass burrs can sprout any time from the 1st of March till the 1st of October and still make the blasted little things that stick the heck out of you. And so you would probably have to put out corn gluten meal six times uh, in a given year to really have much effect. Uh, at this point, all I can tell you to do is mow them off and, uh, if okay. possible, collect, uh, the seeds and compost them or burn them or do whatever with them. But anywhere that they're really thick, what I did in my own landscape was, uh, put down a layer of compost. I did nothing else. I did about half an inch of good compost. And this is an area we use for croquet court and, I went from having grass burrs so thick the dogs wouldn't even think about setting foot in the area. Uh, the next spring, I think I pulled, uh, next spring and summer, I think I pulled three grass burrs out of the whole area when there probably been 3,000 before. So uh, okay. I think compost has a natural pre-emergent effect. Uh, also, it encourages your better grasses to grow. And if you'll notice, grass burrs are always thickest in disturbed soil or in areas where your other grass isn't doing real well. Mother Nature right. sends them in to just to have something green on the on the areas where nothing else growing. Okay, uh, I have a non-blooming Esperanza. Last year it bloomed part of the landscaping that we did. It bloomed great last year. This year uh, it's six eight foot tall, but it has not bloomed yet. And what color is it? Uh, yellow. Okay, is it in absolute full blazing sun? Uh, yes, sir. Okay, uh, it there is only one. Really good yellow Esperanza out there. It's a variety called Gold Star. I think it was Greg Grant that introduced it. Unfortunately, there are 
some people harvesting the seed from Gold Star, uh, which produces a crappy plant. Um, the one thing I would do, I would let it run fairly dry. It's if you if it's under stress, uh, it's going to bloom a whole lot better. But it may just be an inferior plant. Um, okay. I you know we we always specify when we get plants. I sure hope it didn't come from us. But uh, Gold no, Star no, is <laughs> Gold Star is the only yellow esperanza of the big esperanzas that I would plant. Uh, because the seedling ones just don't ever do as well. But uh, if it's getting full sun, run it on the dry side, uh, let it get a little stressed, and that should at least get it into bloom. When we see the size of the bloom clusters, we can pretty much know for sure whether it is indeed Gold Star or whether it is one of the not-so-good knockoffs. Okay, I'll try that. Last question, uh, I have a pride of Barbados, a couple of, they're like bushes right now. Uh, should I stake those up, or do well those nah. things just kind of? No, they'll be they'll field. be as strong as they need to on their own. I hope those are in bloom for you. Yes, yes, they are. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, no, just just let the uh, just let Pride of Barbados do its own thing. Uh, and in a storm and a heavy rain, it's going to get beaten down a little bit, and it's going to pop right back up. And I hope yeah. you like it because it's going to be coming up all over your yard in the future because. <laughs> As you may have heard yeah. me said, those those the seed pods they actually they're darn near as loud as uh, twenty two short. Um, you, you probably fired enough guns in your life to know what I'm talking about. But those yeah. things pop open and they'll throw that seed twenty and thirty feet. I find it, you know, my my porch is twenty feet away from where I've got a clump of pride of Barbados, and I find the seed up on my porch. So um, if you want to transplant, you'll need to do it when the little plants are very small. Uh, But you're in the the, uh, Pride of Barbados business from now on, whether you like it or not. Yeah. Okay. Well, that answers all my questions. I sure do appreciate your help. Always a pleasure, Gary. Have a great day. And let me move on to uh, 830, Gary. Good morning. Good morning, sir. Um, thanks for sharing your knowledge with us uh, every weekend. I appreciate it. Well, I've made so many mistakes in my life that uh, I, uh, what is it, Will Rogers said, said good judgment comes mainly from experience, which comes mainly from bad judgment. So <laughs> I'm just out to try to help you avoid making the mistakes that I have seen and made myself. So it's my pleasure being here, but I do appreciate it. Well, we do. Thank you. Well, I have a pleasure. grass question. Uh-huh. Uh, it's a, a stand-up Bermuda. And my friend has okay, and, and I must say that uh, he's not organic, and I really don't hold that against him. But trying to convert him, um, <laughs> he he mows it low, uh-huh. and he has what he calls goose grass that is spread spread, you know, throughout. Mm-hmm. He, he's used a chemical to uh, to kill the goose grass. It's kind of stunted the Bermuda, mm-hmm. but now he's got a bunch of um, I guess white crowns or dots or throughout. Can can I suggest he use uh, liquid molasses to spray on that to help decompose those crowns? Absolutely. And uh, tell him he just needs to start mowing a little higher, too. Uh, okay. If he if he really wants to mow low, he needs to uh, he needs to plant some Tiff Bermuda, uh, okay. Tiff Green, Tiff 419. Uh, the Tifton series are made to have very low, very short internodal distances, as they call it. 
And uh, this is what they grow on, you know, golf greens where they mow it daily. But if you take your common Bermuda or Riviera or Sultan or Blackjack or all of these improved Bermudas and try to start treating it, you know, cutting it really low, it's going to be brown 90% of the time and you're just never going to look real good. So um, I would get them on organic fertilizer if you can. Um, uh, molasses would be a great start, but I think if he's going to keep it looking nice, uh, he really needs to mow it a little bit higher. And if he doesn't want to do that, he needs to uh, switch grasses. And uh, I love Tiff Bermuda. I think it's uh, one of the prettiest grasses out there. And it will stand very low mowing. It'll stand heavy foot traffic so long as it gets good sun. It's an outstanding grass. Sadly, you can't plant it from seed. You have to plant it from existing pieces. But you can buy a little bit of it, chop it each one of those squares into 30 pieces, plant it out there. And, and actually, if he would go back and, and plug uh, the uh, TIF 419 squares into that existing Bermuda and continue to mow it low, pretty soon he'll have all TIF because the tall Bermuda will die out and the TIF will take over and he can mow that daily as low as he likes. But he, okay. I, I guess that's one other thing I would say. Uh, if you're going to mow Bermuda low, you have to do it uh, frequently. You can't let it get tall and then mow it down, let it get tall and mow it down because even TIF won't stand up to that. But if you will mow it every few days or even every day, you can keep it down to where it's, you know, a quarter of an inch high and it'll do just fine. What What is the rate of liquid molasses um, to, per gallon? About uh, about two tablespoons per gallon. Oh, that's all? Yeah. If and you if, used any more, would that, would that uh, stun it? I wouldn't go over two ounces. Wouldn't do more than double it because that... Uh, that starts creating so much more uh, microbial in the soil, you can get a little bit anaerobic areas, which is not good. But, uh, no, we figure, you know, and, and there's been a good deal of research because a lot of people are using this on hay fields. And uh, you really need the law of diminishing return sets in if you use more than about five gallons per acre. So uh, a little goes a long way, and more is not always better. But used at the rate of, uh, you know, an ounce or two tablespoons per gallon, uh, it'll do wonders for the soil. All right, great. Again, thank you for your help, and uh, we appreciate you being there. Well, I appreciate you being there and calling, Gary. Have a great weekend, and we'll talk again. All right, one line open. Grab it if you like. Then you know the number, 210-599-5555. Uh, Bill, Carolyn, and Elroy. Bill's up first. Uh, good morning, Bill. Good morning, Bob. Thank morning. you for taking my call. Thank you for calling. We got a mystery. Uh, we bought a five-gallon uh gardenia uh-huh. in houston and back in may okay. everyone told us to forget it it's not going to work in south texas but we totally convinced we could do it so we planted it amongst uh five other what we coined high maintenance plants just uh-huh. like it yeah and every day we babied it and treated it like it was our own child and it's beautiful we wake up one morning every leaf is gone not nibbled on but gone and no not ants. not lying no on the ground underneath it. No, not a single leaf. No mm. ants, no caterpillars, no crickets, no grasshoppers. Uh, I've asked several nurseries. They say, well, we don't know. The plant is screaming back. Uh-huh. It's in full, full leaf again. But where did the 300 leaves go overnight? Are you deer-proof? Yes. Ooh. Right amongst uh, hibiscus, which they love, mm-hmm. not a single leaf touched. 
You know, there are the Texas leaf cutter ant can do that, but and they're midnight operators. I mean, they may not be there when you go to bed, and they're not going to be there when you wake up in the morning. But um, that is, in my opinion, the most likely culprit. There's a big black caterpillar um, called a woolly bear. And uh, they're totally hide out during the day, and they can eat a huge number of leaves. But I, uh, it'd take an army of woolly bears to strip a big gardenia. Um, right. So it was, um, it was a five gallon when we bought it, and it, it was in full bloom with the leaves. Uh, I found one little trace of what was left of a leaf that had fallen down in the crack between the pot and the soil, uh-huh. and it was nibbled all the way around. By some little critter will do this um spray the plant with a little bit of uh um something that contains bt the bacillus thuringiensis mix a little bit of las- uh, molasses with bt when you spray it uh that will last for several months and that'll make absolutely certain that it's not a caterpillar that goes after it and um okay. Yeah, the uh, I just I would expect to see damage on other things if it were leaf cutters, so it is a bit of a mystery. And I'm you you've created uh, a very funny situation without even knowing it. You said uh, I've got a mystery, and it's about a gardenia. There's a variety of gardenia called mystery that is one of the most commonly sold big gardenias. So uh, uh, perhaps without knowing it, your 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 statement was very much right on track, saying I've got a mystery. It's a gardenia. <laughs> So plant people find that humorous. Probably anybody else just look at you like you're stupid, which I may be. But anyway, that that is very unusual. Uh, you know, if you let them get too dry, the leaves will yellow and drop, but the leaves are going to be there, and that's going to happen over a period of days, not overnight. Yeah. So uh, it is also possible that it could be rats or mice um, because they will, you know, occasionally – uh, I see them eat buds all the time, but um, not as common to see them eating leaves. Maybe I'll ask uh, Howard Garrett. Hopefully, be talking to Howard right at eight o'clock and uh, making myself a note here: gardenia leaf loss, and ask him because they grow more to gardenias up in the Dallas area than we do here. But uh, um, I'll ask him if he has any ideas. But no, I'm I I agree with you. It, it is a mystery whether it might be an August beauty gardenia, but it's definitely a mystery as to where the leaves went. Yeah, the plant's three foot tall, and there was no damage to the stems at all. Yeah, they were just as fresh looking as if we had gone out there and pricked them off with our thumbnails. Well, leaf cutter ants uh, they fit the bill more closely than anything else as to something that will do that, and it's possible that they could do it on an overnight basis, but um, uh, just, you know, keep your eyes open, walk out at night with a flashlight every now and then, and see if you see any suspicious characters hanging around, so to speak. Do the leaf cutters just disappear? Yeah, Is yeah, their their mound may be uh, 200 yards away from uh, where they're eating, or more. Okay. And I do have a few mounds, but it is they're a long way away. Yeah, they. Uh, what, yeah. what do their mounds look like? It's not, it's not like a fire ant mound. No, it'll be an area of ground that is relatively bare. You'll have very sparse vegetation on top of it. It'll be slightly raised and probably ten feet across. Oh wow! 
Okay, these are these are little bitty with the mounds. Now those could even be uh, earthworms uh, pushing up their pile of castings. Uh, the leaf cutters, what they do, they're not actually eating the leaves, but uh, and that's why they can take so many leaves so quickly. They create a big underground chamber. They put the leaves in that chamber, and then they actually feed on a fungus that grows on the leaves. But there wouldn't be a trail. Not really. Okay. I mean, if it were something, uh, if it were out, oh, my business partner has a thousand feet of Guadalupe River frontage on her property, and I've seen trails where they're going back to the same tree or the same group of greenbrier or something like that, you know, night after night, then they would actually wear the grass down. But uh, this hit and run kind of thing, there not necessarily would be any trail there. <laughs> It run. Okay, well, will the BT take care of the ants, too? No, it'll only get caterpillars, but it's cheap, it's easy. Don't spray the whole area because we don't want to kill all the caterpillars in the world, but uh, give that guardian, just, you know, mix up a cup of it, really, just enough to spray that one plant thoroughly, add a little bit of molasses to it, and you'll be sure you don't have any caterpillars on there for the next four to six months. Okay, all right, answers my question. I appreciate it. Always a pleasure, Bill. <laughs> we'll talk to you again. Bye. All right, uh, let's talk to Carolyn. Good morning, Carolyn. Good morning, and welcome back. Well, thank you so much. Good to be back. Uh, I have a problem with the cedar elm. Um, I I dug it from from my brother's property ten years ago. It didn't have a it didn't have a tap root, uh-huh. but I finally got it to make a root flare. It's probably thirty or more feet tall. It's absolutely gorgeous. Good. However, on one side of it, and I do have the roots, I have a really nice root flare. On one side was kind of a lumpy root, and it would just have bushy growth out of it. So I finally cut it off. I I tried picking it off. I tried picking these. It didn't help, so I cut it off, uh, sawed it off. And and now I've got these um, other little bushy things coming from... From that side of the tree, roots that are under the ground, and I, I was just frustrated last week. I couldn't get a hold of you; you were gone, and I sprayed some, um, some, uh, uh, um, what do you call it, um, to kill the weeds? Um, vinegar and orange oil. Vinegar and orange oil. Yeah. Vinegar and orange oil. Uh huh. And it did kill those bushy little things, uh, but there's some farther out, and I didn't want to overdo it and kill the tree. The mm-hmm. tree is absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. No, you don't. Other roots on these. Hmm? Um, you don't have to worry about your big tree. And what you did was just uh-huh. burn the foliage off of it. And it's kind of like mm-hmm. oaks and and oak sprouts. The uh, cedar elms do that. Red oaks do it. There are a number of trees, even crepe myrtles, love to produce little shoots down at the base of the tree. It frequently is when the tree has been stressed, and the tree certainly had been stressed this year, but past couple of years have been fairly droughty years, and that may have, you know, encouraged the uh, cedar elm to start making this little adventitious tissue growth in that area. But uh, I I would do exactly what you did. I just, uh, if when it gets to be a, much of a nuisance, I just mix up a little bit of vinegar and orange oil and just spray. You don't want to soak the ground. You just want to coat the foliage, and that'll burn those leaves off within an hour or so. And uh, yeah. but, but what you're doing is just kind of typical of a mature cedar elm uh, that at some point in its life had a little stress. So not necessarily well, anything unusual or anything that you you know have to be worried about. It's just a little nuisance you're going to have to periodically take care of. 
Oh, okay. So I didn't want to kill it with the uh, orange oil and vinegar because it's not that part that I cut off that was a big lump, mm-hmm. uh, a knot like it's gone. But then along further along the ground, I see these coming up. Yeah, yeah. And, Just, uh, I again, wanna, don't. And, and I've never had that. <laughs> I know it's not stressed because I put the water and I really soak it every now and then. And uh, I also. Uh, you know, I also make sure it has a lot of fertilizer, so Good. the tree is absolutely gorgeous. But well, that is a real problem that I didn't want to ruin the tree. No, just okay. spray enough spray enough to coat okay. the foliage, but don't soak the ground. Okay. Now, be aware okay. that you may brown out the grass in the area, so don't get carried no, away. And, no grass. Okay. And no grass. Then it's, you it's, just... It's, I have a zero escape. Mm-hmm. You yeah. just uh, spray when it gets becomes irritating, and don't worry about it. Okay, and then another thing is... Uh, someone gave me a, a fern bulb, and I planted it last year. And I would like to plant some fern in that area. It's it's between it's between two dr- driveways, and uh, so uh, I don't have anything growing there uh, other than you know little uh, plants. And I this fern, um, when can I divide it? Because I planted that I planted that that uh, bulb, and I've got. It seems like a whole patch of ferns there. Okay. When can I dig up and then move it to this area? When can I dig? Do you, up can you tell me what? Up? Can you tell me what kind of fern it is? I can't, and they they probably don't know either. It was a neighbor, and they okay. it was there when they around their tree when they moved there. I measured it this morning. It's about the tallest fronds are about twenty five inches or something like that. But it is gorgeous. I just have it in the wrong place. Is I it thought, is it a very fine divided leaf, or is it uh, a flat leaf with a lot of what look like little tiny leaves making up the one bigger leaf on the fern? Oh, I'm going to look right now when I ask you my last question. The other question is that it's got uh, I've got these blue bonnets coming up everywhere. I have terrible mm-hmm. trouble. When I lived in Bernie, I had beautiful blue bonnets. Well, it's, I'm having a difficult time getting them, but this year I see I've got little blue bonnets sprouting everywhere, and I wonder if that is, there's a chance that they'll make it through the winter. Is you if you keep early. if you keep them watered, if it gets dry, uh-huh. they'll be fine. Cold will not bother your blue bonnets in Fort Worth, but. Uh, uh, it's going to be it's going to be tough on the plants this year because all of our spring rain made a lot of that seed sprout as soon as it dropped. And if we do get uh-huh. into a drought situation now, a lot of those little plants will die. So be sure you keep them be sure you keep them watered. But um, okay. what I'm guessing, Carolyn, is probably what you're looking at is not really a fern. It's probably a variety of asparagus. There are several different asparagus that are oh. referred to. As asparagus ferns, and they have. No, it's a fern. It's a fern. It looks like a fern to me. Well, I, you know, I wish I could see it, but uh, yeah. uh, ferns, ferns don't grow from bulbs. Uh, ferns, a true fern. Oh. Per, true ferns grow from a an underground stem called a rhizome, and the okay. the true fern will grow from a piece of that. Um, the mm-hmm. asparagus ferns, as they are so commonly called, and there are several different ones, myri, springeri, plumosus, um, mm-hmm. they make big old kind of white bulby looking things on their roots. Uh, they look like little bulbs, but those are actually just a water storage 
expansion of the root. So I would dig around a little bit and see if you find that. If so, you you have what is called an asparagus fern, and it you can you can dig it and move it anytime, but unless it gets huge, you really can't divide it. On the other hand, if it's what we call a river fern or a wood fern, um, you can uh, divide those. Probably the fall is the best time. But they grow from an underground rhizome, an underground runner, if you want to call it that, and uh, they transplant very easily. Now, when you transplant it, the ferny top will die back, but then it'll come sprouting back out all over the place the next spring. So, um uh, Google, look at asparagus ferns and look at some of those. And um, okay. the the best fern, uh, and is this area you're wanting to plant, is it sunny or shady? It's shady. Okay. It's shady. And so this the, he has his growing, the neighbor has his growing around a big tree, so yep. I know it'll take shade. And yep. it dies in the wintertime, and it comes back in the spring and stays green all summer. And I'm looking at it now, and some bug is chewed off that. Bunch of the bunch of the fronds. Oh boy, I guess the BT has to come out. But anyway, it's one long it's one long stem, and then off the side of each stem are these little little ones, these little fern like things, just uh, coming okay. right off the stem. And they're flat. You could lay that down on yeah. the ground, and it would be flat. Sure. Well, hopefully, it, what it is, look up river fern. Properly, it's called okay. dryopterus, but look up river fern. That is okay. probably what it is, and you could actually transplant it now. Best time would be in the fall, but if you want to dig some little clumps, maybe four inches in diameter, it should transplant uh-huh. very successfully. But expect it to die back to the ground when you transplant it. That's normal, but okay. then it will grow well, out. Okay, best for me to wait till the fall because it looks really pretty now, except for I think some caterpillars sure. got a hold of the top of yep. it, and I'm going to BT it today. Yeah, the late September, early October be the perfect time. Okay, thank you very much. Sure. So that's it, and I'll keep my blue bonnets watered because I've been trying for years to grow these blue bonnets, and I see a bunch of them all over the yard. Well, hopefully it'll be, I a, mean, not the yard, but, mm-hmm. be a good year for you this time. All right, we had one of the callers drop off. So we have uh, Elroy and Brian, and uh, we'll start with Elroy. <laughs> Good morning, sir. Good morning. How's everything uh, in Fredericksburg? Oh, pretty good, I guess. I've got a problem in my garden. I've got an ornament in there, and I don't know what it is. It's not an armadillo. He don't do too much damage, but he digs. Okay. And he dig. Sometimes he'll just dig a little bit, and sometimes he seems to love my beans, and he destroys some of them. And sometimes he almost digs out a tomato plant, but uh, it it survives. But do you I don't know what it is? Do you know if this is happening during the day or happening at night? I really don't. Okay. If it's during the day, it's almost certainly a squirrel. If it's at night, it's either a possum or a raccoon. If it's a big hole, it's a raccoon. If it's a relatively small but, you know, very obvious hole, it's probably a possum. Because, um, and the other thing it could be, although there's usually, shall we say, some evidence, it could be a skunk. 
because skunks love to dig. You know, they eat a lot of earthworms, and your garden is probably the best soil they've ever seen, and consequently it's probably full of earthworms, possibly a few grub worms, and that's what the skunks are after, and actually that's what uh, the other guys are after too. But nighttime marauders, um, it's, it's in order the size of the hole. It's a skunk, a possum, or a raccoon. Daytime, it's going to be one of the squirrels. Now, I fight those blasted black mantle rock squirrels, and those things can, you know, dig like a, uh, oh gosh, just a, a huge amount of damage. But even your arboreal squirrels, little fox squirrels, the things you see more up in the trees, those guys will come down and dig around. They have such a sense of smell, they can uh, smell several inches into the soil if there's a tasty root or a you know, nut got buried there or something like that. So um, keep an eye you on know, it. There's, there's sometimes, you know, when you have an armadillo, you can usually see where he drags oh, his yeah. tail. Yeah. And it, it seems like you you see some of that, but it's so small. It's, it's, I'm sure it's not an armadillo because he don't do that much damage. Mm-hmm. It, when it first started, it was just here and there, and now it's getting a little worse. And I, I do have an old, I used to have an armadillo in in the garden, and right. he right. created a burrow. Uh-huh. And I don't know if it goes into that burrow at night, at, during the day, or... Well, if it's if it's deep enough to actually be a burrow, stick your hose down there and turn the water on, and uh, whoever's down there will come flooding out along with the water. They don't like to have their burrows uh, flooded, and you know, five ten minutes, you'll know if there's you'll you'll catch the digger that way. But um, next time you're around a feed store or a nursery, pick up a bag of blood meal. Uh, blood meal is a great fertilizer, and basically all it is is dried slaughterhouse blood. It's exactly what the name suggests, but it's a good fertilizer. It's high in iron, but it creates an odor that uh, squirrels, skunks, um, raccoons, they just don't like the smell of it, and they will usually go elsewhere. So if you see somewhere that they're starting to do a little digging, sprinkle just a handful of blood meal around, and uh, like I say, it'll help the plants in your garden and all, but it'll sure run off some of the other critters. Oh, he goes all over the garden. He, yeah. He'll hit there and over there. Now, and my, I have another problem. My beans look great. The bushes are great. They bloom. But you don't set. It's called ninety-five degrees. <laughs> yeah, it's what what, what variety what. what variety of beans are you growing? A top crop. Yeah, try contender. I've had better luck with contender setting in the heat than any of the others. But uh, when we started suddenly started getting up into the mid to upper nineties. Boy, my beans just shut down, uh, even my black-eyed peas. I was picking a ton of black-eyed peas last night, but there are no new blooms, no new peas coming on at all. But uh, it's just the heat. Uh, plant another crop for fall, and you'll be back in the bean business. But uh, uh, Mother Nature's just decided to, to turn the oven on, and unfortunately that turns the bush beans off. Okay. Okay, well... If you get any solution on how to catch this warmint, I, I'm sure I've got to catch some live traps, but 
that don't seem to work. When what kind of bait would you use? I would use, um, gosh, I I would try maybe some dried fruit. Um, I use dried apricots or dried peaches. I stick a wire through it and actually tie it to the pedal in the trap, and uh, that'll catch most of them. Um, if it's a raccoon or anything like that, a sardine or two will draw them from half a mile away. But uh, uh, I've got a lot of figs. Would that work? Figs would probably work very well, but uh, try to tie them down. I also sometimes I will just sprinkle a handful of bird seed out and uh, and then just set the trap right on top of that, and uh, that gets the squirrels real well. Okay. But be I'll sure and check that trap because you don't want to you don't want something trapped out there in the hot sun all day. But uh, um, you try and let me know what you find. Okay. Okay. Thanks a lot. You're welcome, Elroy. Thank you, sir. Okay. <laughs> Goodbye. All right, that worked out pretty well, Brian. We've got about three and a half minutes. How can I help you? Good morning, Bob. Morning. Yes, yes sir. Um, I heard y'all talking about taking cuttings from tomato plants a couple of weeks ago, but I didn't get the gist of it. And I've got some sweet 100s that are really putting on nice, and I wanted <laughs> to see if I could make some cuttings from them. You absolutely so, can. The, the important thing on tomatoes is indeterminate varieties like sweet 100 or sun gold and a lot of the heirloom types they grow very easily from cuttings whereas determinate types will not make good cuttings but what you can do you need some of what we call perlite the white volcanic material and um it's what we root cuttings in just you know take uh empty shallow pot or shallow tray you know a couple of inches you need to have actually about three inches of perlite You'll take cuttings from the tips of the branches on your Sweet 100, um, strip off the lower leaf or two. You need to have about an inch of stem down in the perlite. You don't want great big cuttings because they'll dehydrate before they form roots, but you want about an inch of the stem down on the perlite. Keep it in the shade. Um, moisten it every time you think about it. There's no such thing as keeping perlite too wet because it's so open. It's full of oxygen all the time. Uh, your commercial grower would have it sitting on a bench where the mist came on four times an hour for 10 hours a day. So, uh, you don't have to do that, but you do need to keep the uh, perlite moist. You need to keep them out of direct sun. Your tomato cuttings should root in about three weeks at this time of year. Okay, and that's time enough to give me some good fall tomatoes. Absolutely. You know, assuming that we have, I never use the word normal talking about weather, <laughs> assuming we have a typical fall where we don't have a freeze until late October, early November at the earliest, and um, you'll be harvesting a lot of tomatoes. Uh, because, you know, you don't go through that seedling stage. It doesn't take that plant, you know, eight weeks to get up to really productive size. I mean, I, I've seen them start trying to bloom and produce fruit while they're still in the perlite. Wow. Okay, I'm going to run get me some perlite this afternoon. Yeah, and the thing about perlite, again, it's uh, it's very inexpensive. You can reuse it. Uh, commercial people, about every fifth or sixth batch of stuff they run through there they'll stick the perlite in the oven and bake it at high temperature for a while just to kill out any bacteria or fungal organisms they make it 
and it was not designed for horticultural use. It's uh, the reason they created or started creating perlite was to make lightweight concrete. But it's an ore that's heated up to about 6,000 degrees in a furnace, and it pops like popcorn. And um, But it just happens to be a sterile medium, which makes it, and it holds moisture, but it also holds air, which makes it perfect for rooting cuttings. Great. Well, thank you, Bob. I appreciate it. Good luck with it. Let me know how it does for you. All right, sir. Will do. Thanks, Brian. <laughs> Bye. Thank you. Certainly. Bye. Bye. All right. It's eight minutes after eight o'clock, and it is time to bring on the Dirt Doctor. Good morning, Mr. Garrett. Hello. How are you? I'm fine. <laughs> Very good. Ah, <laughs> oh, it's. I didn't uh, hear anything. Oh, uh, uh, no. These crazy phones and everything else i think there's a there there's some little pause in there or something like that but uh got you now you sound great this morning how's your world well it's fine it's uh warm here but judy uh, brought up something to me yesterday that really surprised me i wondered if, if you remembered that this time last year it the temperature was ranging between 100 and 111 <laughs> you remember that? I do remember that because I was working out in it and regretting it. I'm surprised you don't remember a golf game or two and sweating. But I, well, I don't remember. She <laughs> said something about being 108 this time last year, and I looked it up. Yeah, it got as high as 111, 112 here in uh, here in Dallas. And that doesn't even, that doesn't even bring in the heat indices, which were well above that so yeah it's uh and who knows if they're right they so seldom are but we're looking at potential a couple of days in the next week not even getting above 90 which is just unheard of in my many years of texas julys my my water in my koi pond's doing weird things again i, I was about to have to have the guys come over and go around and completely rework the whole edge. I'm sure there's plant roots down in it and all kinds of things, but it was losing more water than uh, than I've ever uh, noticed. Hmm. And then the last couple of days, it it stabilized. <laughs> it stopped losing so much water, and it's been a little hotter. Uh, the humidity has gone down some, but it's it's weird. Weird things going on with the water. <laughs> Well, uh, I've been seeing a little bit of the same thing. Just before we went to Atlanta, one of our employees told me that there was water coming up through one of the sidewalks, and I went out, and sure enough, you know, here's the water actually flowing up between the bricks, washing the sand out. And uh, I said, oh, boy, what a mess. I said, turn off the water tonight and uh, turn it back on in the morning, and I'll start digging when I get here. I turned it off overnight, turned it back on the next morning. No water anywhere, no leak anywhere for the next five days. Somebody told me there was a little bit, you know, coming out at some point, but then it stopped. So go figure. It's the, it's the water leak that comes and goes. <laughs> I keep telling them, I'm not going to dig unless I can actually see moving water because I don't want to go out there and just be moving pipes back and forth trying to find out where it's coming from. So, yeah, water water's an issue uh this far south as well, doing very weird things. But uh, anyway, as long as your fish are doing well, that's a, what's that? I guess the soil moving around and various things happen, and it can stop. It can be leaking and then stop apparently. So I, 
I don't know if we're going to dig into it again or not. I probably will at some point, though. Well, it's just it's just frustrating, is what it is. <laughs> but it's uh, I sure like when it's not leaking a whole lot better than the thought of getting it out there. And you know, in in the the heat, I, even though it's not a hundred and five, it sure does feel hot a lot of these days. And I don't know whether it's just. Uh, you know, a little higher humidity or whether it's just me, but man, some of these days to be out in the sun doing some of the things I have to do, it just gets unpleasant real quickly. Well, it might be just that we're a year older and that's the difference. <laughs> that's it what I was trying to feels, avoid. <laughs> it definitely feels hotter to me this year. But anyway, the the plants, uh, I've got the sprinkler system running now. They're uh, wilted out there pretty badly. It's, uh, Another thing I'm noticing is that you have to continue to do some of the things that we try to recommend done on an annual basis. You know, the mm-hmm. uh, the ground covers and things. I just wrote a uh, column for the Dallas Morning News about ground covers in uh, areas where it's too shady to grow grass, and I'm having to trim out the uh, ground covers, Persian ivy, Asian jasmine, English ivy, and various kind of things around the bases of trees now because it's grown back in and a lot of the vines are growing up the trunks of the trees. It's, I used to tell people if you did it one time a year, mm-hmm. uh, winter usually when you have time to do it, that, that that's enough. But I'm seeing that when you've got things growing aggressively <laughs> under these organic programs, it's uh, more than once a, a year need. Well, then when you have the good rains we've had this spring and early summer, too, that sure does make a difference. I, I don't remember a year that ground covers, uh, in particular, a lot of things, but especially the ground covers, I'd, I'd, it just have grown at a record rate, in my opinion. What are you recommending right now to, for people to buy in the heat and plant for color? Well, Vinca are you know is still hard to beat. I I really love this uh, this new series or a little more experience, but these little miniature Vincas, um, uh, Cataranthus uh, the, is the genus on that. Not not true Vincas, but um, uh, they Roberta got one of those. Somebody gave us one at uh, one of the conventions a couple of years ago, and they are beautiful in pots or in the ground. Um, I've become very pop, very fond of some of the new Angelonias uh, that are really, really good summer bloomers. And, um, oh gosh, you know, there's a few of the other usual characters like Purse Lane and Portulaca and those things that love the heat. But uh, if I had to pick probably the top two or three, it would be uh, it'd be the Vincas, the uh, Penta, uh, yeah, Pentas, and probably Angelonia are the three most colorful things for sunny areas. Yeah, I need to get out and try to get some of that mini uh, Vinca and uh, some Angelonia as well. What's doing the best in my garden right now is uh, the Pentas and the little uh, Portulaca. Portulacas and Purslane are pretty indestructible, I guess. There's apparently some new ones there i've got one that has a yellow flower with a red center in yeah it. it's that, that's that's a new series they're called the fairy tale series one of them is cinderella and uh there are two or three fairy tale names to them but man there's some there's some bicolor more in the purse lane than in the portulaca but there are some just uh, I mean, I just can't walk by them. Unfortunately, I can buy anything I want to, and then because I know it's just going to the nursery to sell. But there's some incredible new colors out there. 
Yeah, that's that's kind of a a fun deal. I'm gonna play with those a little bit uh, a little bit more than I have in the past. Had one area of sedges that were really looking uh, bad, <laughs> and I thought, well, I thought these these things were tougher than uh, it looks like. And then I finally noticed while the sprinkler system was running out there that there was a whole area that wasn't being hit at all. It wasn't no. covered up by soil and you know work that had been being done in that that area. So uh, you just have to kind of keep an eye on things. If you get too comfortable and, and miss a spot <laughs> that goes dry in this kind of heat, you can lose some stuff in a hurry. Yeah, you really can. Are you guys seeing uh, the downy mildew problem with the uh, um, impatiens? That, uh, we we heard a lot about it a couple of years ago and then didn't see it, but there's there's a, a we've we're seeing it in a lot of plants coming from the growers in fact a lot of growers just aren't growing impatience right now i think it's worse for them because we don't see much of it in the nursery at all and i think it's because we're organic where they're hitting it with those chemicals but uh it's apparently been a real issue across the country one of the big seed companies it might be oh golly um Bloomin' Orange or uh, or Benari, but there is a new impatience out, and I saw a slide where it looks just like the elfin type, but it was interplanted with that, and all the elfin is folding up and dying, and this the newer impatience are just going strong. So I didn't know if uh, if the downy mildew was a root issue up there or not. I've heard a little bit about it, but haven't seen much uh, at all. And again, what you you're saying is right i'm sure the organic program we're just not having that much of a, a problem with it it's a fungal disease again and of course all the, the cornmeal juice and the uh, hydrogen peroxide products and all that stuff work as well on it as anything and it, it would be interesting to see some of the growers that are dealing on a large scale use some of the things that you and i recommend all the time <laughs> I, I think it would not only be uh, preventative but it'd be curative too if stuff pops up oh yeah and and that's the problem it creates from us for us right now is it just it's almost impossible for us to get uh impatience um and it's gotten awful late you know in the season but still places in the shade they're they're good they're good plants and uh uh, and but the growers just they've just shut down growing them because of the problems rather than looking for a solution to it and the solution is simply to be go organic. Yeah, it's kind of like periwinkles and the phytophthora. Right. Exactly. Away from that too, and the organic program solves that as well. You know something I, I'm not sure I've ever even talked to you about on the show on the air, but we we went for a period of time at. <laughs> We didn't have it up there, and, and it's been there now for a while, and that is my slideshow on the uh, fabulous trees of the world. It's it's in the members' area. Have, I t- have you seen it? Have you had time to take a look at it yet? I really haven't. I most definitely will, but uh, we talk about it all the time. But, you know, this time of year, I'm just, if it's daylight, I'm outside doing something, and if it's dark, I'm probably asleep. So that's one of those things that uh, I'll take a hot afternoon and sit down and go through. I've seen I've seen a lot of your slides of your magnificent trees, but I don't really think I've watched the program since you put it together, you know, in a distinct, uh, in a distinct presentation. Well, this was put together for that uh, event that we did last year, and for a while I just kind of sat around, and I thought, well, heck, well, I'll put this yeah. on, on the uh 
in the members area, and, and it took a while to do it for some reason. I'm not sure why, but now it covers all the fabulous trees that I've seen around the world, including the 3,000-year-old Montezuma cypress. But it also covers, and I've forgotten, it covers the state champion pecan uh-huh. in Weatherford, and it covers my ginkgo tree, and it covers oh, the oldest uh, tree that I have, which is in a pot, the uh, Crimson Queen Japanese maple. Mm-hmm. A lot of it shows the work going on on the uh, pecan tree. It just... It was a place I've never been able to put that many slides together because in a presentation you just you rarely have over forty five minutes sure. to do that. But now it's all there, so the people that are members check it out. It even shows uh, planting and pruning techniques and all that kind of thing. Well, take a minute and talk about the Organic Club of America, which is what we call the members section of uh, of DirtDoctor.com. And uh, tell people a little bit more about that because, what is it, $15 a year? I can't remember. You just charged my credit card. 25 Join for multiple years. There's, uh, yeah. uh, you know, there's some discounts and there's some stuff, including a seed from your garden as well as as mine for various uh, plants that we've grown. And um, some other things, I've still got some of the uh, elephant garlic uh, corn. Okay. A lot of them. Doug is kind of, he kind of doles those (laughs) out carefully. Well, tell him I'll have a ton of shishuto seed to send that way. I got back and found that a lot of Mine had fully matured and turned red, and I said, oh, I'm just going to let those dry and have a have a lot of seed of that to share. That That is the most fantastic little pepper that I've, I've encountered. Yeah. It's terrific. And the inland sea oats, more and more people ask yeah. me about the sea oats, and you get a, there's a lot of use mm-hmm. for that. But anyway, it, it's just an area uh, where you can go in and see some of the presentations in the past that aren't available anywhere except one of them is uh, it's going by as the screensaver on my computer. I'm looking at it right now. The <laughs> oldest trees in the world that are out in the desert are in there. The the uh, Sela tree that's in uh, Costa Rica, the champion pecan tree down there at Goose Island, and, uh-huh. and more and more. It got beat. It's not the, the uh, state champion. Yeah, that's what I understand. Yeah, that's what I understand yeah, now. Tree in another park that beat it, and it's a terrible tree. It's all busted up and old and falling apart and everything. But Oh, and you also get to see my, the Nelly Climbing Tree and <laughs> Nelly Climbing Tree uh, in, the, uh, in the fabulous uh, trees deal. So it's, it's fun. It may be uh, worth the uh, the cost. And, of course, all the money goes to Torque, Texas Organic yeah. Research Center, and tax deductible and all that stuff. Well, that's just a small, small part of what is up on the members-only section. So, And it gives you a chance to ask more questions and, you know, forums and things like that. You're reminding me, and I'll, you know, Roberta's always complaining about having too many pictures on her phone, which we both do. But I'll get her to go back and look through. You've still, if you get up to the Seattle area at some point, you've got to go see the Bonsai Collection that uh and and now the the names escape me but i will definitely think of it uh where this fellow has just an incredible collection of bone size and the majority of them are not 
little trees that were boneside from the beginning, but they are trees that he has collected and saved, you know, from construction sites and things like that. And he's got a couple of conifers that uh, that go back over 2,000 years and quite a number of them that are five to 800 years old. And a couple of those would be interesting things to to add to that collection as well. And I know yeah, that'd be great. she's such a good photographer. I don't take nearly as many pictures as, as you know, I probably should because then I want some. And I think, oh, that's on her phone, not on mine. But uh, I'll ask her to, when she comes across some of those to just kind of footnote it and, uh, and uh, send a couple of them to you because that was a very, very interesting experience. Yeah, that'd be a good, good thing to uh, add. We've got... Uh, one of the little series that's that's in the uh, fabulous trees presentation is the me taking the little dwarf Japanese maple out of the pot and showing mm-hmm. how deep it was in the removal of you know four inches of soil almost from the top of a it was like a seven gallon container and it shows right. that whole process. The other thing that's going on now that it, there, and there's a little bit in the uh, slideshow about this and I need to increase it too, but. I'm becoming more and more fascinated by how well ginkgo trees grow in the shade. Uh-huh. I've got some that I've had in pots now for several years, and they're getting so, and they've got to be severely root-bound now. They're getting so big that I'm starting to cut them back and do a bonsai type of a situation on them. But they they love growing. It's almost like they're more healthy in the shade than they are out in the full sun. It's pretty pretty uh, interesting to see it. Well, it's one of those things that maybe in their native habitat, maybe that's where the seedlings sprout and grow best and eventually break up into the canopy. But uh, um, it, it's certainly a great tree, and it's uh, I think as long as you have relatively deep soil, it's one of the most beautiful trees for fall color. It's just totally free. I can't say I've ever seen an insect problem in it. I, it's a tree that certainly deserves to be more widely grown, and if it's if it's happy in the shade, you know, just one more reason. But people can look at yours in that fabulous tree show and see how big. It's it's Eventually it's going to be in the sun because it's going to be one of the tallest trees in the landscape. Well, the, the, not only do these small ones, these little seedlings that I keep pulling up, some I've grown myself and some I just transplant. There's a few I need to dig up, and I'll probably do it now. You can do it in the summer and have, have mm-hmm. good luck with it. Uh, and I've got uh, some uh, big-tooth maples I need to do the same thing with. But when the other thing about the shade deal is that the big tree you know, is crowded by other trees back there, a great mm-hmm. big uh, American elm on one side, and then a, a, a live oak that Judy refuses to let me cut down <laughs> on the other side, and some other things, the bamboo forest, the whole deal. The ginkgo has the ability and wins the battle because it can grow in the shade yeah. and keep growing and eventually go out above the other trees. In long term, it's going to uh, win and canopy over everything else, even though it's... Uh, it's covered by some uh, the the uh, American elm is quite a bit bigger, but it's starting to get caught up with by the ginkgo, and the ginkgo is going to win. And it and you know ginkgos can be around a long time. It's not an especially pretty tree, but I think I we told you at one time, and I'm trying to remember Bertram's garden or which one of the uh, uh, botanical gardens around Philadelphia we visited that they think it's the first 
ginkgo that was brought to this country over 300, 320 years ago or something like that. And it's a perfectly healthy tree. It's not nearly as beautiful as yours, but they're a very long live tree, if anybody ever asked that question as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's no telling how long they'll live. They, they were around when the dinosaurs were here, and there's no oh, telling yeah. how many were killed when the dinosaurs were killed. You know? So no telling what we'd have uh, plant-wise in general if uh, all that event hadn't happened, whatever well, it was. It's, and then that brings up something, a book to put on your reading list when you have time. I'm in the middle of now. It's called The Sixth Extinction, and it, it is a really fascinating book. It's, uh, uh, it talks about the, you know, the meteor impact at what they call the KT boundary uh, when you know, all of that event transpired and life, the number of species and all on Earth changed so dramatically. But if you're looking for, for an interesting book that will make you scratch your head and say, wow, I never knew that, uh, pick up a copy of The Sixth Extinction sometime. Very scientific, uh, but uh, still very readable. Sounds, sounds great. Look. One other one other plant I will mention to you, um, as far as talking about good things. Uh, of course, we've been in we're in Atlanta for eight days with the big gift show over there, but they use a lot of the uh, dragon wing begonias uh, as you know in ground in bed plantings. And whereas it seems like everybody in San Antonio, at least, grows them as hanging baskets or as big pots. But they actually use, and I am so sick of the old fibrous-rooted begonias that everybody has to plant beds and beds and beds of. But the dragon wings, and there's a new intermediate hybrid that they're calling baby wings, is kind of halfway uh, between. and But they are so brilliant with their foliage color. Uh, there are much more interesting growth habits, so keep your eyes open uh, for when people get wise and start using more of the of the dragon wings and uh, the newer baby wings in, in some landscape plantings. Well, we've used dragon wings in our uh, shady garden for a long time, and it, it, they hold up the regular ones. I haven't seen these baby wings, but yep. the dragon wings hold up as well to keep color all through the summer in the shade for us as anything that we've ever tried. It's, um, I, I don't know why San Antonio is just backwards in so many things, and I guess that's one of them, but you, you almost never see them planted in a bed uh, down here as everybody's planting the old more common types, but uh, dragon wings are, are really, really beautiful. The other thing I was going to tell you to make you jealous, one of the things I'm going to be doing this evening is shelling black-eyed peas that we got back, and I had a ton of black eyes to pick, and uh, um, it, it one thing that just, and it's a much longer conversation than what we have time for, but one of the things that just amazes me is how little thought people go in, put into choosing food with all the contaminated crap that's out there, with all the GMO stuff that's on the market, and people are just oblivious to what they're eating, and uh, I'm coming to think more and more, man, if you really want to stay healthy, you better grow as much of your own as you possibly can and shop some of the farmer's markets in addition, because, golly, just the stuff coming out about the contaminants in our food supply just absolutely scares me to death, and other people just don't seem to be paying much attention. Well, we'll just keep trying to spread the word. Well, Nellie just came to visit me. Is it time to <laughs> go do something else, Nellie? Jim <laughs> uh, says hi to you and all your listeners. Well, you you give both of the pooches a, a big pep for us as well, and uh, 
Oh, it's so good to visit with you. Hi, that's, uh, you know, sometimes fun to be out of town for a week, but I'm always glad to get back and catch up on uh, what you've learned and what we've learned and just look forward to making it a part of the Saturdays and Saturdays and just appreciate you so much for taking a little time with us. Well, it's always fun. Everybody enjoy those healthy gardens out there. Try to stay cool. We'll see everybody next week. Look forward to it, Howard. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye. Mr. Howard Garrett is the Dirt Doctor. Dirt.com is by far the best and, uh, in my opinion, the only place you're going to find good information for Texas on the Internet. I have this visit almost every day with customers that are out searching the Internet to try to learn this, that, and the other, and they're getting totally bad information from some of the northern websites, but you you just don't know where this information is coming from. Well, with DirtDoctor.com, you know it is Texas information. It's from Howard's Garden and many trips and experiences, and uh, there's really not that much difference between North Texas and South Texas when it comes to uh, how well things grow. So anyway, if you're if you're trolling the internet looking for fun information and stuff, do check out DirtDoctor.com and uh, and hopefully join the Organic Club of America so you can look at things like that great presentation on the terrific trees, uh, uh, majestic trees program. Lots of interesting stuff there. All right, uh, let's get back to gardening here. Glenn's up first, and then Wes, and then Leslie, and that fourth line is ringing. Don will get me a name up there in just a minute. But uh, we start out with Glenn. Good morning, Glenn. Good morning, sir. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Appreciate uh, the call. I had, uh, I had two questions. I've got these plants. I believe they're called, they're a purple plant called a wandering Jude. And um, I'm, yeah, wandering Jew, J-E-W, actually. Are they fairly uh, solid purple, fairly... Um, Oh, good-sized yes. leaf? Okay, yeah. It's a good common name of it, some people, in our politically correct world, which I don't like. But anyway, another common name for that plant is purple heart. And if you ask for purple heart, people will know what you're asking about as well. But what can I tell you about it? How can I get rid of it? <laughs> With a grubbing hoe. It's If you've ever looked at it carefully the leaves are covered with a real fine little hair and anything you spray on it just beads up on it and uh i know of no spray that will get rid of it and you chop it out it comes back you chop it out a second time very little comes back by about the third chopping you are truly rid of it but uh that's the only thing i know that'll work i I don't think there's a spray out there i guess you could you know make a huge pot of boiling water and pour over it and that would kill it but you're wasting your time even the vinegar and orange oil doesn't do much to it oh wow because i know i've already grabbed it out like three four times and if you leave one little bit someplace <laughs> it comes back it does but you know just don't let it get fully reestablished. when you first see that little bit reappear go after it at that point and by the third grubbing you should get rid of it but uh um seriously there there's some weird stuff on the market there's actually a propane burner that's being sold as a weed controller and you could use that if you wanted to and and i'm really serious if you uh you know made a pot of boiling water and poured over it you'd certainly kill it down to at least ground level but the the key to it is just uh be consistent don't let it you're you're only going to knock it back the first couple of times no matter what you do but don't let it get well established before you hit it a second or third time and and you will you will get rid of it trust me okay how was the best solution for getting rid of some old stumps 
what kind of uh, trees were they? Ash. Okay. Ash is is pretty easy because it's a soft wood and it decays fairly quickly. Uh, if you go to a nursery, you'll find a product called Stump Remover. If you happen to know anybody in the meat uh, preserving business, uh, uh, a lot of butcher shops use it. Uh, the chemical is called potassium nitrate. Common name of it is saltpeter. You used to be able to buy it at every drugstore in the country. But uh, whatever name you buy it under, take your take your uh, drill, put a little spade bit on it, maybe half-inch diameter, half-inch, five-eighths, something like that, and drill several holes just as deeply as you can drill down into the trunk. Fill them with your potassium nitrate stump remover, whatever, and then just let them sit the potassium nitrate reacts with the wood fiber, the cellulose, to form something that's called nitrocellulose. And it is, it's not flammable to the point of being dangerous or flaring up. Now, highly, highly purified nitrocellulose is what they use for powder and shotgun shells. But what it does, it just makes the wood softer and very, very burnable. With a soft-wooded tree like an ash, probably you're going to wait six weeks or so. A really hard-wooded tree might take six months. But you give this a little bit of time to work, and then just put two or three charcoal briquettes on top of it and light. It doesn't flare up. It just smolders. It'll just burn itself down into the ground. No smoke or anything like that to upset the fire marshal. But uh, it'll just uh, burn itself down into the ground. You'll be rid of it. A person told me to put brake fluid on not heard of that um i've not tried it so i won't comment on it but uh uh, the nice thing about the potassium nitrate is it doesn't leave any residue in the soil doesn't not harmful to anything else in fact it's actually a fertilizer um but i and i think brake fluid would leave some nasty residue but uh um i don't know haven't tried it so I, i won't uh won't pick on it without having tried it. The the other thing, if you want instant results but aren't don't want to, you're not trying to have the whole stump gone instantly. There is this uh, machine called a stump grinder. grinder. Right. Uh, you can you can rent them if you know what you're doing. Um, I know a Kelly friend up at R not well used to be R and R Tractor Tag Pro up in Bernie now. He makes a business on his time off of going around and grinding stumps out for people at pretty reasonable prices. So that's one way to do it. But for the easy, no effort, not much money way, um, the potassium nitrate does a good job on it. I appreciate. It. I'm too old to do a stump grinder. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, as long as you can write a check, you can use a stump grinder. But uh, seriously, if you're looking for somebody that does a good job at a reasonable rate, call call AgPro up there. They're actually in Fair Oaks on I-10. Might still be under R&R Tractor somewhere. But talk to Kelly up there. I don't know what he charges, but I know it's really reasonable. But he, he spends his spare time hauling that stump grinder around, grinding out stumps for people. So there are people out there that can help you. I'm not going to rent one of those things myself, you know, a uh, uh, a wood chipper is about as big a piece of machinery as I'm going to take on as far as uh, heavy physical activity, but there are people out there that can grind them for you if, if you choose to go that route. I appreciate your time. Always a pleasure. Have a blessed day. You do likewise. I appreciate the call. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Uh, let's talk to Wes. Good morning, Wes. Hello, Wes. Good morning. Hey, good morning. How are you doing, Bob? I'm great. How about yourself? 
doing very well. I live out in the country, and I've got a, a farm gate. It's about 14 feet, uh, and I've got uh, – I was trying to clear the brush away from it. I only use it occasionally. But I ended up with ground hornets on one side of the gate, and I put up with them for a little while. Now they're on both sides, and I can't clear the brush away, and I can't get the gate open. Every time I come around with a weed eater or, or a, a mower, they they attack me. Oh, they're, they're bad news. Yeah, how, how can I get rid of them? Because they're in tall Johnson grass. So I can't see where they're coming out of the ground. First question is, do they have back doors or do I have two hornets, two sets? Um, they make a big, um, I don't know if you'd call it a, a burrow, but uh, if you're in dry ground, no, you probably got two batches of them. But I've seen them in places uh, like in a wood pile. They make the oddest-looking kind of paper-like, paper-mache-looking thing. And uh, I've seen them in rock piles. And if your ground is real loose, you could be looking at one big colony. Um, if it's uh, – it, it, it could be two colonies, but uh, they – you know, it, it is a big – in effect, uh, just a whole colony that's down underground. You can ask my business partner about having ridden a horse over a uh, oh, an area of some you know dry wood that was down on the trail, and having a swarm of them come out and sting her horse on the butt, which landed to a very interesting few minutes as the horse attempted oh, to flee. But uh, <laughs> you know, to the to the way of getting rid of them, um, <sighs> you could. Um, do you have a way, do you have like a, uh, sprayer on the back of a, uh, an SUV or, or tractor or anything like that? Do you have any kind of spray uh, equipment? Just, just to go pump sprayer, you know, yeah. two gallon pump sprayer. Yeah. And you don't want to get close enough to them to do that. I probably. I can, I can drive my car up into the road so I can spray out the window, but I, the problem is I'm not sure where the hole is, yeah. where they're coming out of it. It's in Johnson grass. I can't, and I was trying to mow the Johnson grass down and. Fortunately, my uh, Exmoor was able to outrun most of them. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, things that you can use um, if you can, you know, hit it with uh, some orange oil, fairly concentrated, that will run them out. Garlic. Um, one thing you might try is get some uh, garlic granules. Go to a restaurant supply or something like that, and get a twenty-pound bag. They're pretty darn cheap. And just kind of throw handfuls of that up into the area because garlic is a pretty good repellent for most wasps. And um, right. that that would certainly be worth trying. What, what you know, the logical thing to do would be to wait for cold weather when they're not so active. But you probably want to use that gate between now and then. So. Yeah, going, I need it. <laughs> yeah, going after it in the heat is is much more difficult. Um, but I I probably would be trying uh, garlic as something that you could get dry that you don't need to have a sprayer. I mean, if you had a sprayer, I'd encourage you to get orange oil or cedar oil or something like that and spray it fairly thoroughly. But um, uh, get some get yourself a bag of minced granite of uh, garlic at a restaurant supply. And try just throwing some handfuls of that all over around them and see if it doesn't move them, get them to move on. Okay, I appreciate it, Bob. I'll give that a try and let you know what happens. 
I will look forward to uh, look forward to hearing from you. But you know, do watch them because I, you know, I remember seeing a puppy dog that got into a batch in a woodpile one time and came out and just had like six or eight of them hanging to its face, just stinging. They they're just oh, yeah. nasty. They don't turn loose. You, yeah, you have to beat them off and pull them out of your hair. Yeah, they're tough. Well, I I found I was shredding a field one time, and like you, I found that my John Deere would outrun them pretty well. But I didn't <laughs> I didn't go back to that area for a while. So uh, give yeah. give the garlic a try and let me know what it does for you, Wes. Okay, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Oh, well, my pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Right now we've got about uh, four and a half minutes left in the show, and we're going to talk to Leslie. Good morning, Leslie. Good morning. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. How about yourself? Doing well, thank you. So I've got, I think, three questions. Okay. Um, I've got, um, well, my daylilies have finally stopped blooming, and um, as well as my irises. You know, they're getting brown tips on mm-hmm. them, on right. the leaves. I mean, do we trim those back at any time or, you know... Um, you, it's kind of unsightly, if I'm honest. Okay, <laughs> you you can trim them back at any time without hurting them, but don't remove the whole leaf. Just cut off sure. the brown part. The problem is that when you cut off that brown tip, it's kind of like liriope or monkey grass or things like that. Uh, it's going to get brown on the spot where you cut it back. So you're going to go cut it back again, and and it's going to seem like you're just kind of working your way down the leaf. But uh, that's the problem with you know, especially daylilies. Iris usually are not as bad about it. Iris have a lot of brown tips this year because of a lot more moisture than they really like, and you need to be real sure that the rhizomes haven't gotten buried on your iris. And by the way, if you're out, if you're in the market for acquiring any more of the uh, uh, rhizomatous iris, as we call them, or German iris or flag iris, there are a bunch of new varieties out there that are called reblooming. And they could bloom another two or three times for you through the summer months. So if you go to add more iris, be sure you're adding re-blooming varieties because they bloom far more than the old-fashioned ones did. But uh, um, be careful that you're not keeping them too wet because brown tips shouldn't really be happening on your iris. The daylilies, it's just part of growing daylilies. Beautiful flowers and ugly leaves. Yeah, yeah. I know. (laughs) So, um... Tropical um, milkweed. So, does it not take really hot full sun? Oh no, it'll. I've got, I, I've got one that just will not. You know, it just. I guess it may be the the place where I've got it too. But I've got it not on a hell strip, but it's in um, like next to my driveway mm-hmm. in the garden there, um, and it doesn't seem to want to you know do anything. I mean, it blooms. But yeah. it's always, the leaves are always kind of, you know, sickly looking. You probably so. need to fertilize more. Um, mm-hmm. You probably may need to water a little bit more. You don't have weed block or anything like that down in that area, no. do you? Oh, no, yeah. no, no, no. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And increase your fertilizing and uh, maybe a little compost on the surface of the soil. We've got one of them growing we have a planter box around uh, our business sign, you know, on Sunset Road in front of our nursery that's sitting mm-hmm. out right on the street, which is undoubtedly as hot and nasty as your driveway is. And that thing's just blooming up a storm. It is, uh, you know, heavily branched. The foliage, foliage isn't always gorgeous on 
uh, tropical milkweed as it is. But I'm going to tell you, increase your fertilizing, uh, watch your watering carefully. It's possible you either need to increase your watering or cut it back a little bit because they they don't ever want to get dry, but neither do they want to be soggy wet. But the sun's not the issue, but when you're in the sun, you definitely need uh, a little bit more TLC, and that usually is just in the form of a little more liquid fertilizer, whether it's uh, the fish or the hastagro or the espoma. Just good liquid fertilizer every couple of weeks on them, and I think you'll see a big change. Okay. Another question. Um, you know, I was kind of used to the um, Texas columbines dying mm-hmm. back. Right. You know, and mine didn't do that this year. They're all the, all kinda... the moisture. Okay. So, but it's okay to cut them back to the ground? or No, don't? I would wait for them to die back. They will die back, but let them do it on their own terms. And it's going to happen now that we're into, you know, upper 90s weather, even though they say it's going to cool down this week. Yours will die back. It's just a little bit later this year mm-hmm. because of the milder weather. But uh, wait mm-hmm. for it to die back and then trim it down. Okay. And just one comment. You know, I have these camellias, and for the first time, I've got one that looks like it has fruit on it. Have you ever seen that? Not on a camellia. I sure haven't. Yeah, and because I, I thought I said, well, okay, they're <laughs> well, galls, yeah, right? They, they, no, they can make seed pods.